Inshallah ta'ala, today will be, as we said, a rehash of one of the first episodes of the uh, seerah, and that is the genealogy of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And we began by talking about really the entire Arab race, because this is how the books of seerah begin. Who exactly are the Arabs? And there are many theories, and the fact of the matter is that there is nothing that is quote-unquote scientific. These are all legends that the Arabs have basically transferred down uh, generation to generation, and this is the standard narrative. Uh, the standard narrative goes that the errors can be, can be divided into two broad categories. The first of them are the extinct Arabs, Al-Arab Al-Ba'idah, they're gone, the extinct Arabs. And these are also called the ancient Arabs. And these are the earliest civilizations known in the land of Arabia. The earliest human civilizations known. And the Quran mentions some of them, such as, such as Thamud and Ad. And there were other tribes as well. And so these uh, civilizations, they no longer exist, obviously. And their progeny, according to the majority and dominant opinion, and we'll come to another opinion, has been completely exterminated. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala basically uh, exterminated all of them. And these civilizations flourished five to 6,000 years ago, i.e. from the earliest dawn of uh, the recorded civilization. And some of them were destroyed by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, such as Ad and Thamud, and others were forced to evacuate or wiped out by war. So the point is these are called the ancient Arabs and they're simply in the textbooks of history. The second group of Arabs are called the remaining Arabs, Al-Arab Al-Baqiyah, those who remained. So we have the extinct Arabs, the ancient, then we have the remaining Arabs, Al-Arab Al-Baqiyah. And these Arabs are divided into two categories, okay? So these Arabs are divided into two categories. The first of these are the Al-Arab Al-Aribah, or if you want to be in English, the pure Arabs. The Arabs who were pure Arabs. And the second, Al-Arab Al-Musta'ribah. The Arabs who became Arab. The Arabs who learned the Arabic language. So far so clear. So you have the original Arab, Al-Arab Al-Aribah. Then you have the Arabs who became Arab. The Arabs who took the Arabic language, Al-Arab Al-Musta'ribah. And there are two figures that our legend says are the founders of each of these. These two figures are not brothers, obviously. They're two separate categories. The first of them, Al-Arab Al-Aribah, they say they are, primarily they say this is Qahtan. Or some say his son, Ya'rub. And from that they say we get Arab. Ya'rub, those who were the descendants of Ya'rub, they became Arab. And they say Ya'rub was the first who spoke the beginning of Arabic. So they say Ya'rub spoke a language, they called it Ya'rub, and his basically people were called Arabi from this person, Ya'rub, the son of Qahtan. And they're also called Qahtani Arabs. So his father is Qahtan. So they say this is Qahtani Arabs. And these Arabs primarily were found in southern parts of Arabia, such as the ancient Yemeni civilizations, the ancient civilizations of Yemen. Who was Qahtan? Qahtan was one of the descendants of Sam. Who is Sam? Sam is the son of Nuh. And from Sam, we get the English term Semite. Semite. So from Sam, we get these people are Semites. Now, common legend, biblical, and even Quran, not, not Quranic, and even Hadith. There's a Hadith that some scholars have said is authentic, some have said is not authentic. Uh, there's a Hadith in Tirmidhi, our Prophet said, Sam is the father of the Arabs, and Yafith is the father of the Romans, and 
Ham is the father of the Africans. This hadith is in Tirmidhi. And legend, even the Bible has the exact same thing. That that uh, that Nuh had basically, uh, eventually there were three uh, sons. And these three sons, from them, all of the races came. Sam, uh, Yafith, and Ham. And Sam is the father of the Semite people. Yafith is the father of the Romans. And Ham is the father of the Africans. And this is the standard biblical narrative. And it is also the standard Islamic narrative as well. Of course, modern science does not accept any of this because they have their own uh, theories. Having said that, by the way, modern science does say that the Semite people have a certain gene. So there is some evidence, but obviously modern science does not hold this to be uh, true. So Qahtan is one of the Semites. And of course... Ibrahim is also one of the Semites eventually. Ibrahim and Qahtan are both descendants of Sam. Qahtan and Ibrahim are not brothers or contemporaries. We don't know when Qahtan lived. But Qahtan's ancestor, Ibrahim's ancestor are both Sam. And therefore both Ibrahim and Qahtan are Semites. However, of course the lineage of Ibrahim we consider more pure. Our processing came from that. In that sense, meaning the sense of Ibrahim salam. Now, some people say that this man, Qahtan, was actually one of the descendants of the ancient Arabs, Al-Arab Al-Ba'ida. So he wasn't just a total stranger wandering in, but rather that some ancient Arabs remained, and one of these people was Qahtan, and he flourished at a time and a place we have no idea anything really about him, other than southern Yemen basically, uh, and that his children were called the pure Arabs, because his son is the founder, let's say, of the Arabic language, Ya'rub. So Ya'rub is the founder of the Arabic uh, language. Now, uh, as I said, we do not know when uh, Qahtan flourished. By the way, Imam Al-Tabari uh, Al said that Sam uh, has two different branches. One of them goes to Ibrahim and another goes to Qahtan. And other people say, other scholars say that Qahtan is of the descendants of Hud alayhi salam. Hud, and of course Hud also is one of the ancient Arab Al-Ariba. Uh, but the point is we don't know when he lived. And most likely Qahtan was predating Adnan by many centuries. Who is Adnan? That's the second category of Arabs. And these are the Arab Al-Musta'riba, the Arabs who became Arab. Okay, so once again, two large groups, the Qahtani Arabs and the Adnani Arabs. And all the Arabs are familiar with these two big branches. These are the two mother branches. The Qahtanis are those who lived in Arabia from the ancient times after the destruction of the first Arabs. Clear? Very ancient times, but not from the earliest of times. That's Al-Arab Al-Ba'idah. So then who are the Arabicized Arabs, the Adnani Arabs? These Arabs are of the descendants of Ismail. One of the descendants of Ismail, Allah knows how many generations down, his name was Adnan. And Adnan, obviously, where does his lineage come from? It goes back to Ismail, the son of Ibrahim. And where was Ibrahim living? In Arabia? No, where was Ibrahim living? Iraq and Sham. Iraq and Sham and Palestine now, right? Ibrahim is from up there. So they say, therefore, that these Arabs, Adnan basically, are musta'riba. They acquired the Arabic language because Ibrahim was not speaking Arabic. He was speaking ancient Semitic language, which is the mother of Hebrew and Arabic. Some language that is neither Arabic nor Hebrew. It's some ancient Semitic language. However, most likely it is closer to Hebrew than it is to Arabic. Most likely 
this language that Ibrahim spoke is closer to ancient Hebrew than it is to Arabic. So where did Arabic come from? The Qahtani Arabs. Okay, and so when the descendants of Ismail basically lived in the Arabian Peninsula, they obviously had to adopt and take in the Arabic language. Now, obviously, human psychology and sorry, human linguistics and knowledge tells us that they must have added to the language as well. Every time a civilization comes, you also add to the language. So, the Adnani Arabs, and who is Adnan? One descendant of Ismail. How many people between Adnan and Ismail? We'll come to that, but very simplistically, we do not know. And Adnan is a direct ascendant of our Prophet Muhammad So our Prophet is an Adnani Arab, not a Qahtani. He is an Adnan, he has to be Adnani, because Adnan is of the sons of Ismail salam. And our Prophet is the 20th grandchild of Adnan. So between our process and Adnan is exactly 20 uh, generations. And by the way, for the Arabs here, so Adnan, one of his great-great-great-great-grandchildren was Mudar, and his brother was Rabi'ah. So Mudar and Rabi'ah are the two main branches of Adnan. Footnote here, there is an entire science of classical Islam, which is one of the rarest sciences alive to this day, and that is the science of Ilmul Ansab, the science of lineage that people literally memorize every one of these branches and trees and whatnot. And that is a science that the Arabs prided themselves on. And anybody who was knowledgeable of Ansab was considered to be uh, what we would consider a well-educated man. He's read all the classics. In those days, what are the classics? It's the Ansab, it's the lineage and genealogy. So our Prophet is of the descendants of Adnan. When did Adnan live? I did as much research as I could find here. There's a report from uh, Ibn al-Kalbi, and Ibn al-Kalbi uh, is one of the greatest ulama of Ansab, died 204 Hijri, a uh, very early scholar, and one of the founders of the history of writing genealogy, classical alim, like Ibn Hisham and Ishaq, there's also Ibn al-Kalbi. Ibn al-Kalbi said that Ma'ad, the son of Adnan, lived contemporaneously with Jesus Christ. So Adnan is one generation before Jesus Christ. Now, I calculated this out. Actually, it's very accurate. This, this seems very accurate. Why? Because typically 100 years exactly, 100 years exactly is how many generations typically? Two? Five? Three years. Exactly. The year is 2015. Go back to 1915 in your own family. And who was flourishing at that time? Great-grandfather, not grandfather. Great-grandfather, think about it. Flourishing and being at the prime where you are right now, of your life. Where you are right now, at your life, this is your great-grandfather, right? Uh, my own great-grandfather died in 1918, by the way. Pretty much exact, 1918, he passed away and relatively young, he was in his 40s. And basically, it's exactly what I'm going to be in a few years as well. But inshallah, I hope I don't die in a few years. But uh, the age is pretty much the same, inshallah ta'ala. The point being that if you do the math, if you do the math, when did, what was the time difference between Isa and our Prophet Quickly, everybody should know. 500 and? 570. Because our Prophet was born when? 570. So we have exactly 570. Divide 570 by... 20 and you get around 31, 32, which is basically exactly right. How old are you when you have your son or daughter? In your early 30s, typically, right? That's the time zone, typically, the average, right? And therefore, if you do the math, 
So we can pretty accurately date when did Adnan live. He lived 30 BC. Because his son, Ma'ad, was contemporaneous to Isa ibn Maryam. Clear? So Adnan, the founder of the Adnani Arabs, is roughly contemporaneous to uh, Jesus, or the pre-Jesus Christ. Uh, and Qahtan, we have no idea, but probably a few hundred years before him, because Qahtan predates Adnan. How do we know this? Because Ismail marries into the Jurhumites, that is one of the branches of Qahtan. Clear? So the Qahtan has to predate Adnan. So, with this background, the lineage of our Prophet is divided into three categories. The first category, we know for sure, without a shadow of a doubt, without any difference of opinion, between him and Adnan. This is set in stone. Everybody agrees. How many generations? 20. Set in stone. Everybody knows, everybody agrees. Memorized. The second category is that we can try to glean some knowledge from pre-Islamic sources, but we don't have anything concrete. And this is from Adnan to Ismail. From Adnan to Ismail. Now, we cannot have any information from the Jewish and Christian sources about this period. Why? From Adnan to Ismail. Why? Jesus, okay, how about the biblical sources? No, the, the what? It's not mentioned. Why is it not mentioned? Exactly. They don't care about Ismail's lineage. The Bible does not mention at all Ismail's lineage. By the way, the Bible mentions that there's going to be the sons of Kedar. Kedar. And one of the descendants of Ismail is Kedar. Qaidar. Right. The Bible mentions, go look it up. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, it's in Genesis. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, Genesis, where uh, Ismail is mentioned, and Allah says, I shall make a great nation out of him. And it also mentions the sons of Kedar, K E D E R. And Qaidar is one of the sons of Ismail and one of the ancestors of Adnan. So Qaidar is mentioned in the uh, Bible. Uh, but that's about it. So, where do we get this information from? From Arabic folklore. And Arabic folklore has not been preserved that well. So, Al Tabari, for example, mentions seven opinions about the lineage between. Adnan and Ismail. And in one opinion, there's seven people, in another eight, in another nine, in another ten, in another 41 people. Between Adnan and Ismail. In the end of the day, we have no idea. It's a big question mark. What are the names of the ancestors and how many ancestors between Adnan and Ismail? We have no idea whatsoever. Uh, even though, to be frank, seven does not seem enough. Because if you do the math, Ismail is not living just 200 years before Jesus Christ. Seven generations would be 300 years. That's not enough. And probably the 4041 seems closer to the truth. In any case, we don't know. So that's the generation, or that's the, the, the case we have no knowledge about. Then from Ismail to Adam, we have one source. What's that source? The lineage of Ismail to Adam. We have a source. What is our source? Where do we look up a lineage from Ismail to Adam? The Torah. The Old Testament. Can we rely on the Old Testament? No. So that's our only source of information. And if you look at some of the charts printed uh, in, the, in the Muslim world and we find them in our houses, you find a lineage of the process all the way to Adam. You see, must have seen this. It's also online and whatnot, right? 
this this chart is half fact, half myth, and half fiction. Ah, that doesn't make sense. One third, one third, one third. Okay. As for the fact, it is between us and between a Prophet and Adnan. That's a fact. From Adnan to Ismail, somewhat of a myth. Then from Ismail to Adam, this complete, we take it from the Jewish Christian sources. We don't have anything in our tradition about the lineage between uh, the, uh, from Ismail and Ibrahim all the way back to the Prophet Adam salam. And if you look at this chart and count the numbers, you will find exactly 55 generations between Adam and the Prophet and this fits in perfectly with the Jewish calendar of around 6,000 years. Because the Jews and the Orthodox are the fundamentalist Christians. The Orthodox Jews and the fundamentalist Christians believe that we have been around for how many years? 6,000 years. And this genealogy kind of sort of fits in perfectly to that narrative. Of course, this is highly problematic in light of modern science, in light of archaeology, in light of human remains, in light of cave paintings, I've gone into this tangent multiple times right here from this platform. I'm not going to go into them again, but the fact of the matter is that we can carbon-14 date humanity pretty clearly for tens of thousands of years. We have paintings in France, uh, we have Aborigine structures going back 30,000 years in the minimal. 30,000 years, this is like literally set in stone, carved in stone. It's not a pun. We have carved in stone images. We have a handprint of a famous uh, uh, cave that was uncovered in France. The artist left his handprint on there and it was a cave that was basically blocked off and it was discovered a few years ago. Famous, and there's a National Geographic documentary about this. He left his handprint over there. You can carbon 14 date, the cave was cut off because there was an avalanche and it was sealed completely. Then it was discovered a few years ago. You go back, you see the remains of the fire. You see the remains of the painting, the carvings. The animals shown no longer exist in the world. Right? So it's a bizarre, amazing, this goes back 30,000 years. These are homo sapiens. These aren't some Neanderthals or some Cro-Magnon. These are homo sapiens, our, us. Uh, the hand, even the, the guy who was there literally put his hand there and he showed this is the same size as us, everything. The point being that clearly 6,000 years does not make sense from a scientific perspective. And I've said this before, I'm not going to go into it now in a lot of detail, but we as Muslims do not have to believe the 6,000 year timeline. Our tradition does not tell us to believe in 6,000 year timeline. We have no problem extrapolating back 20, 30,000 years as long as science tells us. And if we were to do this, then we have to say that this lineage that is shown between Adnan and Ismail and between Ismail and Adam has to be wrong because there must be more people. Cannot just be just this small lineage. And there are evidences to this as well. Uh, Imam Malik ibn Anas was told about a human being in his time who could trace his lineage back to Adam alayhi salam. And Imam Malik said, and how, do you, how, how does he know who told him this lineage? He denied this. And, uh, and he said that, how about to Ismail? And Imam Malik said, even this I doubt. That it's not, how would somebody know his lineage back to Ismail alayhi salam? And uh, there's also a hadith in it, uh, a hadith regarding this in Mu'jam al-Kabir al-Tabarani, which has some slightness in the chain, uh, that the Prophet heard somebody saying his lineage back to the Prophet Nuh, in which the Prophet when he heard this lineage, he said, These people who are putting this lineage have lied. The genealogists have lied. Then he recited the verse in the Quran, uh, Surah Furqan, I believe, And there were kathir, many generations between them. 
So it is as if, now the hadith is slightly weak, if we say it's authentic for historical reasons, meaning when it comes to history, we can be a little bit lax and accept incidents, uh, but it's not authentic as a saying of the Prophet. But it makes sense, to be honest. Allah says in the Quran, وَقُرُونًا بَيْنَ ذَلِكَ كَثِيرًا There were many generations between, and Allah is mentioning past generation, past nations. And Allah says there were many generations between them. If Allah is saying many, in my humble opinion, this is not 10, 15, 20. For Allah to use the word kathir, it doesn't mean, in my opinion, it's just like, it doesn't make sense that this is just seven people between Adan and Ismail or ten people between, it seems to be a little bit more than this, right? And this would fit in perfectly with modern science as well, that there were many, many, many generations. And there are other evidences as well that indicate that 6,000 years doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Of them is the process that I'm saying, uh, that I and the Day of Judgment have been sent like these two fingers. Meaning the difference between these two fingers is how, how little? How little is the difference? I and the Day of Judgment have been sent like these two fingers. Meaning the Day of Judgment is right after me. Okay? So the, since the beginning of man until the process is this finger, and then the beginning of man till the Day of Judgment is this finger. So how much is the difference? This little. Okay, we are now in what year of the Hijrah? Who can tell me? People have opinions about which year we are in the Hijrah. 1437 now. 1437 now. MashaAllah, our young brother is right. 1437. So, 1437 years have gone by and we're still not here. And we don't want to be alive when this year comes. Right? So, if this little amount is 1000 years, how about then the rest of the finger? Doesn't it kind of make sense to stretch it back to more than just 6,000 years? And there are other evidences as well. Of them is the hadith in the Sahih Muslim uh, where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created the children of Adam and Adam was there and he saw a bright light amongst his children and he was amazed by this light. And he said, who is this, O Allah? And Allah said, this is your son, Dawood. This is your son Dawood who shall live towards the end of times. Akhiruz Zaman. Now hold on a sec. Dawood is Akhiruz Zaman? What does that mean about us then? If Dawood, who lived maybe three, four thousand years before us, right? Allah knows how many years. If Dawood, or sorry, not three, four thousand, but less than that, but still, if Dawood is Akhiruz Zaman, where does that leave between him, Adam and Dawood? How many generations? If we were to go according to the biblical or the 6,000 year period, Dawood would not be Akhir. Dawood would be a little bit after half. Right? So for Allah to say, this is your son Dawood who will be fi Akhir zaman So why am I saying this by the way? Because in my humble opinion, the evidences are very clear for me, but these are not certain evidences. They're not qat'i, they're dhanni. That the 6,000 year timeline is not Islamic. And this is one of those things that people bring doubts about Islam. Look at your 6,000 year, you, know, you, know, you don't believe in evolution, for example, whatnot. And I have given entire lectures about that, not the time here to get into it. We're not restricted to 6,000 years. We can extrapolate, mashallah, tabarakallah, as long as science tells us to, because we don't have any time frame. And perhaps these evidences seem to suggest that there were plenty of 
there were plenty of uh, generations between our Prophet and Adam. طيب, with that, now let us get to the actual lineage of the Prophet That our Prophet is Muhammad ibn Abdullah ibn Abdul Muttalib ibn Hashim ibn Abdi Manaf ibn Qusay ibn Kilab ibn Murrah ibn Ilyas ibn Mudar ibn Ghalib ibn Fihr ibn Malik ibn Al-Nadr ibn Kinana ibn Khuzayma ibn Mudrika ibn Ilyas ibn Mudar ibn Nizar ibn Ma'ad ibn Adnan this is the exact 20 okay that is his lineage as has been agreed upon these are exact 20 and we do not have much information about all of these 20 however we do have little tidbits here and there about some of them and in particular our Prophet mentioned some of them in his ancestry this hadith is in Sahih Muslim and so let's look at this hadith and then we definitely have to analyze the people that he mentioned that our Prophet said Inna Allah astafa kinanata min waladi Ismail. Allah chose kinana from all of the descendants of Ismail. Wastafa Quraishan min kinana. And he chose Quraysh from kinana. Wastafa min Quraishin bani Hashim. And he chose the banu Hashim from the Quraysh. Wastafani min bani Hashim. And he chose me from the banu Hashim. So we believe that the lineage of our Prophet is the best and the most noble lineage ever. That nobody had a more noble lineage. And this was very important, especially for the Arabs of his time. Because for them, everything depended upon lineage. Everything. Uh, his status, his nobility, the, any cause he was fighting for, everything depended upon his lineage. So our Prophet was chosen to be of the best lineage. And this is narrated by the Sahaba themselves when Ja'far ibn Abi Talib was speaking to the Najashi. So what did he tell the Najashi? And I've gone over this story before as well. So Allah sent a messenger to us. We knew his lineage. عرفنا نسبه. And when Al-Mughira ibn Shu'bah stood in front of Yazdajard, the last emperor of Persia, what did he tell Yazdajard, the last emperor? He told him, فَبَعَثَ اللَّهُ إِلَيْنَا رَجُلًا مَعْرُوفًا نَعْرِفُ نَسَبَهُ وَنَعْرِفُ وِجْهَهُ وَمَوْلِدَهُ فَأَرْضُهُ خَيْرُ أَرْضِنَا وَحَسَبُهُ خَيْرُ حَسَبِنَا وَبَيْتُ أَعْظَمُ بُيُوتِنَا وَقَبِيلَتُهُ خَيْرُ قَبَائِلِنَا وَهُوَ بِنَفْسِهِ كَانَ خَيْرُنَا So in this hadith, he's basically saying, Allah sent us a man, we know his lineage and we know where he came from and his land is the best of land and his lineage is the best of lineage and his house, meaning his, his immediate qabila is the best house and his tribe is the best tribe and he himself is the best of us. So our Prophet wasallam has the best and the highest lineage. Now, Pause here for a quick second, one of my quick tangents here. There is a lot of misconception amongst our Muslim Ummah about the concept of sharaf, of lineage, of nobility, of lineage. And people really get confused and messed up uh, because uh, I guess we uh, have not done the job of explaining properly. We, meaning the scholars and students of knowledge, have not done the job of explaining this properly enough. Listen, doesn't matter who your father was, Allah Azza wa Jal will not cause you to enter Jannah or Jahannam based upon your father. That's clear. Your lineage is irrelevant when you stand in front of Allah on the Day of Judgment. That much is clear. There's no problem about this. 
But this does not mean that nasab and sharaf and hasab is irrelevant to a person's stature in this world. Rather, the world universally acknowledges lineage as something to be acceptably proud of if it is done within a reasonable amount. If it's taken to an extreme, then it becomes fakhr and it becomes haram. But there's nothing wrong with taking some amount of happiness and nobility and status confers this nobility upon people. So even in America, which is one of the places where lineage has almost completely been destroyed because America by and large is a land of immigrants, even unlike Europe where lineage still carries some weight. Even in America, if your last name happens to be Kennedy or Rockefeller, you're going to go places and doors will open up for you. Whether you like it or not, this is the reality of the world that we live in. Right? It doesn't matter if you're the most ignorant, uneducated person. If your last name is Bush, you might end up, well, anyway, let's not go there. But the point being that it doesn't matter. You know, this is the reality of the world we live in. That parents, grandparents, tribes, they do establish some type of respectability and precedent. And there's nothing wrong with accepting this as long as it doesn't become a racism or a mark of pride. And what did we expect Allah Azza wa Jal to choose our process and accept the best lineage in the history of mankind. The best lineage in the history of mankind. And this goes back to the sharaf or the honor given to the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And that is why, uh, that is why, and this is a very controversial point that many Muslims balk at when they hear, but this is something that is very clear in the uh, Sunni tradition at least. That the tribe of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, Quraysh, has certain blessings. And the Al al-Bayt have certain privileges. We believe this as Sunnis, even though we say the Shia have gone to an extreme. We as Sunnis confer privilege on the Ahl al-Bayt. Is that not the case? Even though we say the Ahl al-Bayt will not enter Jannah if they're not righteous. A person who is not righteous of the children of the Prophet that's not going to cause them to enter Jannah. But in this world, do we not respect them more? Do we not uh, prevent Zakat? Because Zakat is not appropriate for them. We, we don't give them zakat because zakat is not given to, it's, not, it's, it's, it's demeaning to give zakat to the, no, the children of the Prophet, the Al al-Bayt of the Prophet right? And we have other ahkam as well. So the righteous amongst them have a double reward and a double respect. And the unrighteous amongst them, their lineage is not going to cause them to enter uh, Jannah. So the Al al-Bayt and the Quraysh as well. Our Prophet said, Al-A'immatu min Quraysh. The leaders of my ummah should always be from the Quraysh. This is a hadith. And that is why for the bulk of this ummah, the Abbases and the Umayyas and the bulk of the ummah up until the 1500s CE, basically for you know 1000 something years, our Khulafa were from the Quraysh. Yani the Khulafa al-Rashidun and Zubair, uh, Abdullah ibn Zubair, and then the Umayyas and then the Abbases, they're all from the Quraysh. And that's a uh, majority of the Sunni world basically accepted this uh, reality. The point being that our Prophet was from the best of all lineages. So he said, that from the children of Ismail, Allah chose who? Who? From the children of Ismail, Allah chose? Kinana. Okay, before we jump to Kinana, let us talk one sentence about Mudar. Mudar is one of the ancestors as well of the Prophet It is said that Mudar uh, was the first of the Arabs to uh, train camels and to use them uh, in a way that they can basically uh, travel in caravans. And he would also... Uh, have camel poetry. What is camel poetry? So it's like what you say to the camel to get it to go. So to 
train the camel to go faster and slower and to do that. So it is said that Mudaro is of the, uh, the first person to do that. As for Kinana, uh, Kinana, the name means that the pouch that you put the arrows in, this is what Kinana means. The, the, and that's not his actual name. He is called Kinana. Why was he called Kinana? Because he was known for his bravery. He was known as being a repository of ilm, of wisdom, of of knowledge. Uh, it is said in the books of history that people would do hajj in order to meet with Kinana. Now hajj of course since the time of Ismail. So Kinana, to meet Kinana became an honor and people would have a double niyyah when doing hajj. That not just to come for the Makkah and the, and the Hajj, but to also meet Kinana. People would literally travel. Kinana lived a very long life and he was a repository of knowledge, of uh, wisdom. And he has uh, certain sayings still recorded in, in classical Arabic about wisdoms and mathal, mathal um, parables or uh, statements of, of concise wisdom. These are recorded from Kinana. So Kinana was a legendary Arab up until the time of the Prophet Then he said, and from Kinana he chose Quraysh. From Kinana he chose Quraysh. Okay, I just quoted you the lineage of the Prophet There is no man called Quraysh in there. There's no man called Quraysh. Who is Quraysh? Lots of opinions. And it appears that uh, there are three people who can be called Quraysh. And some scholars have said there is the big Quraysh, the middle Quraysh, and the small Quraysh. Al-Quraysh al-Akbar, Al-Quraysh al-Awsat, and Al-Quraysh al-Azghar. So three people have this title. But two of them are the real contenders. And that is, number one is Fihir, and number two is another. Fihir and another. Going back to the lineage, Muhammad ibn Abdullah, ibn Abdul Muttalib, ibn Hashim, ibn, uh, ibn Abdul Manaf, ibn Qusay, ibn Kilab, ibn Murra, ibn Ka'b, ibn Lughay, Lu'ay, ibn Ghalib, ibn Fihir. So number? Number? 11. 12. Number 12, Fihir. Fihir. Ibn Malik, ibn another. Or number 14. So either 12 or 14. One of these two is Quraysh. One of these two is Quraysh. And they say, that another is the big Quraysh and Fihir is the middle Quraysh. And Qusay, who is five generations, is the minor Quraysh. So three people had a founding role in the tribe of Quraysh. But the actual descendants of Quraysh, uh, sorry, the actual tribes of Quraysh, all of them combine at Fihir. And Fihir is the twelfth. Twelfth. So the stronger opinion, the one person who combines all the tribes of Quraysh, and one simple fact here, uh, that uh, the ten who were promised Jannah were all Qurashi. They were all Qurashi. Who is the one ancestor, the closest ancestor? It's Fihr. The ten people who were promised Jannah, Ashram Mubasharun, if you go back to their lineage, you keep on going, 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 it's actually Fihr where they all combine. So, the ten people combine at Fihr, so therefore it seems to be Fihr is the person who is Quraysh. And all of the tribes of Quraysh, how many tribes of Quraysh were there at the time of the Prophet Probably around 12 or 13 sub-tribes. So you have the Banu Hashim, the Banu Zuhra, the Banu Makhzum, all of these tribes we kind of talked about here and there. Uh, the Banu Umayyah, the Banu Abdul Shams, these types, they're basically around 12 or so tribes. And uh, they all go back to Fihr. So uh, Quraysh, what does it mean therefore? This is a laqab, a, a name. It's not his, it's a title, not a name. What does Quraysh mean? 
number of opinions once again. One opinion is that uh, Quraysh comes from the term to trade because the Quraysh were involved in trading. Another opinion is that Quraysh Yaqdushu comes from gathering together because the Quraysh were in different areas and one of their ancestors combined them in Mecca. We'll come to the story very briefly. And a third opinion, uh, which is narrated in, in, in Al-Tabari, that Quraysh comes from uh, conquering because there is a story, a long story, where uh, one of the Quraysh basically uh, conquered, or, you know, long story. And then they say this is why he is called Quraysh, that Quraysh will conquer other tribes. Whatever the point, whatever the meaning is, this was the laqab that stuck with Fihr. And so the descendants of Fihr are called Qurashi. And uh, therefore all of the tribes of Quraysh go back to Fihr, who is uh, 12 ancestors back from the Prophet wasallam. So now let us begin very quickly about the immediate ancestors of the Prophet wasallam, whom we know a little bit more about, beginning with Qusay, and then Abd Manaf, and then Hashim, and then Abdul Muttalib. That will be our rest of the halaqa for today. What we know about these people. And then we'll stop before the birth of, uh, I mean, Abdullah and Amin and the story, we already have that inshallah, so we'll go, you can go back to that online, it's already been done. So today we'll just finish up with the story of Qusay, Abd Manaf, Hashim and Abdul Muttalib. And as for the marriage of Abdullah and Amina, uh, that's already been recorded and done. Qusay, how many generations? I want everybody to memorize at least up to Qusay. At least up to Qusay. So come with me, come with me. Number one, Muhammad ibn Abdullah ibn Abdul Muttalib ibn Hashim ibn Abdi Manaf ibn Qusay. Okay, memorize this. At least this much everybody should know. Okay, so Qusay is the star of the Quraysh. That's why he's called the minor Quraysh. He did, he really started the immediate ascent of the Quraysh. So that when the Prophet came, the Quraysh are at the pinnacle of their power. Okay, so Qusay is the one who began. And then five generations later, the Prophet comes, and of course, he then takes it to an international level. So, what did Qusay do, and when did he live? Qusay lived around 400 CE, around 400 CE, i.e., 170 years before the birth of the Prophet So, what did Qusay do? Many things. The most important thing he did, he wrestled back the power of the political city of Mecca into the descendants of the Quraysh. Well, who was in Mecca at the time? There was another tribe of the descendants of Adnan, but not of the descendants of Fihr, i.e. not a Qurashi. And this was the tribe of Khuza'a. So who are the Khuza'a? They are another Ismaili. When I say Ismaili, I don't mean that Ismaili. Ismaili meaning of the descendants of Ismail, right? Another branch, not the descendants of Fihr, Quraysh. The Khuza'a are another branch of the descendants of Ismail. And the Khuza'a had taken over the city of Mecca. Who did they take it over from? From the ancient Arabs that Ismail had married into, and that is, who did Ismail marry into? Jurham. Jurham. So Ismail had married into Jurham. Jurham stayed for a while. They began doing bad things, overtaxing the people. So the Khuza'a overthrew them and kicked out everybody, including Fihr's descendants, i.e. the original Quraysh. So where were they living? They were living in uh, small encampments, in small dwellings outside of Mecca, i.e. not in the city of Mecca, but traveling distance from Mecca. So Qusay, Qusay, in a long story mentioned by Ibn Ishaq, 
managed to win over the tribe of Khuza'a, the chieftain of the tribe. How did he do so? By a very smart tactical move. He married his daughter. So the chieftain of Khuza'a, he had sons, he had daughters. Qusay managed to marry one of his daughters. And he then demonstrated his skills over and above the sons even of the chieftain of Khuza'a. And therefore when the father died, now he's in the family, he's a son-in-law. The people wanted Qusay over the sons. And because of this, he managed to actually go to war with the other tribes. And he called in the descendants of Fihr, i.e. the other Qurayshi tribes. And this is now the gathering. Some people say, this is why Quraysh is called Quraysh. Some people say this. He gathered together the tribes of Banu Fihr. And he fought the tribes of Khuza'a. And of course, they're very distant cousins, obviously, very distant cousins. But he fought them and he expelled them. So he took over Mecca. So the great-great-grandfather, six generations back, was the great-great-great-grandfather of the Prophet ﷺ, reclaimed Mecca for the Quraysh. Or I should say claimed it. Because before that time, until the time of Ismail, there was no. So Quraysh, when did they start their rise to power? In the time of Qusay. Now, what else did Qusay do? Qusay was the one who built the Darun Nadwa, which was the parliament. He was the one who instituted this concept of everybody come and voice your opinion. Then he built the structure that the process of himself, exact same area, I'm sure it was not the same building, but the same area of Darun Nadwa. We have mentioned the Darun Nadwa so many times. Who was the one who built it? It was Qusay. He also took custody of the Kaaba and he assigned responsibilities that trickle down. The responsibility of water, the responsibility of hospitality, the responsibility of, 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 of diyafa or guests, the responsibility, the keys of the Kaaba. He was the one who made a list of responsibilities. And when he was alive, he had it all. Then amongst his sons, it was distributed until the days of Banu Hashim where each tribe had a certain responsibility and as we know even in the time of the Prophet one of the tribes, the Banu Abdiddar had the key, one had this, one had that. So this, all of these responsibilities, Qusay was the one who began it. And this also indicates that Qusay was the one who began the institution of taking care of the Hujjaj. So the Hujjaj would get free food and water. That wasn't there before. Now this is Frankly, he's probably a good guy and nobody's denying that. And he's also a good politician. Because to be a good politician, what must you do? So make the people happy. There's nothing wrong with being a good guy and a good politician. I know it's rare, but that's... So Qusay was one of those people. That he wants to please the people. And he's a good person, a hospitable person. And therefore, he instituted the entire concept of free... Uh, hospitality for the Hujjaj. When they come, they are our guests. And every Hajj, he would stand and do a fundraiser. And he would say, Oh, people of Quraysh, uh, Allah has given you the blessings of taking care of the, his house. And the people are coming. And these pilgrims are guests of Allah. And they deserve our hospitality. So they would donate money and food and whatever. And he would then provide for the, uh, for the Hujjaj. And uh, also, Qusay would facilitate the actual Hajj uh, rites as well. He would light a fire for the Hujjaj in Muzdalifa. They could then use that fire to take their own, you know, to the local tent. Uh, he dug a well uh, to provide water for the Hujjaj uh, and uh, this water was needed because 
we've all done this before, but I'll just reiterate, there was no Zamzam in the time of Qusay. Why was there no Zamzam in the time of Qusay? Go back a thousand years or however many years that we talked about Khuza'a taking over from Jurhum. So when Khuza'a attacked Mecca, we're talking Allah knows how many centuries ago. We don't know when this happened. Uh, this is probably we're going back a little bit after the time of Jesus Christ. I mean, this is like 400 years before the Prophet We don't know roughly when. When Khuza'a attacked Jurhum and Jurhum realized they're going to lose, they did a very dastardly deed. They buried the well of Zamzam. They destroyed it and they buried it. And no matter how much Khuza'a tried, and they tried and tried and tried and tried, they could not find the well. They just keep on digging and nothing is happening. They could not find the well. Of course, Allah will. They would not find it. So for over 300 years at least, the people of Mecca were forced to get water from other sources. Now they cannot leave. This is the house of Allah. They're also accustomed to living there. Once you become accustomed to living, then you bear with it, right? So they cannot leave. So they had to dig wells far away and bring the water in. They would have a mountain collecting ways to do that. So they, they had a very tough time. But they eked out an existence without, without uh, water. And Qusay also, of the things that he did, he was buried uh, at uh, Hujun, and Hujun is the famous graveyard of Mecca. He was the first person to be buried over there. And to this day, Hujun is really one of the most uh, famous graveyards of Mecca. He was the first person. He's still buried there uh, to this day. His son, Abdi Manaf, his actual name was, was Mughira. And uh, Manaf means that which is raised. So they would give other names to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And Abdi Manaf was known for his handsomeness and uh, his his. Uh, leadership skills, he became famous even in the lifetime of Qusay. Abdi Manaf was handed many responsibilities and he was beloved to the uh, people. His son Hashim is of course where we get Banu Hashim from. And Hashim is not his name, it is his title. His actual name is Amr. His name is Amr. And Hashim comes from Hashama, which means to grind, because he would grind the barley and, pre and present food to the pilgrims. So his name was Amr and he was called Hashim because of his generosity. And it is said that Hashim never ever ate food alone. That if he was ever eating food, he would just call anybody to eat with him to show his generosity. He was never a person to eat uh, alone. And Hashim did perhaps the most important thing to raise the economic level of the Quraysh. So his grandfather Qusay raised the political level of Quraysh by capturing Mecca. Hashim was the one who began the economic, if you like, uh, raising of the Quraysh, and that is he instituted Rihlat al-Shita'i wa-Sayf. He was the one who thought of the idea. One particular year there was a very severe drought, and uh, people were dying, and quite literally a man would take his family and build a, a grave in the middle of just because there nobody else is going to build a grave and just wait for death to come because there was no food and Hashim just thought this is just too much something has to be done and he came across the idea that why don't we institute two journeys one in the summer and one in the uh, winter so in the summer uh, we go down to uh, Yemen and in the sorry and we go we go up to uh, Rome and in the winter we go down to to Yemen Rihlat al-Shita'i wa-Sayf and they would go to uh, uh, the city of, of Basra, Busra, we talked about this, and it is still the remnants of that city are still 
uh, to this day uh, visible, the very city of Basra, uh, which is outside of Damascus by 80 kilometers or so, uh, that the Quran, that Hisham began going up there and down to Yemen. And this really was a stroke of genius that of course Allah blessed him with. And there have been entire books and articles written in the English literature uh, by non-Muslims about this, uh, this, this reality because it truly is, I mean all of us who are knowing business here, business is all about location, location, location. Right? Where is your business and what is it catering to? Location. And he came across the very simple idea that everybody's coming to us in Hajj. Why don't we give them stuff that we have the market, it's all here in front of us. The people are there, why don't we sell them the merchandise they'll need? Where do we get the merchandise from? Well, we got to get connected to the world trade routes. What are the world trade routes? Well, you want Indian stuff and, and African stuff, well then you go to Yemen. And in Yemen, you will have the ships from India coming, Indian spice, Indian this. You'll have the African uh, stuff coming in to Yemen. So we'll go to Yemen to get the Indian and African stuff. And we'll go up north and to get the Roman and Persian goods because there is the Silk Route, right? The Silk Road ended, I shouldn't say ended, it, it went through Damascus and Basra. So Basra is on the road of the, on the, on the, uh, on the Silk Road. So the Silk Road, as we all know, is the most famous road of caravans. So he just hooked up to the Silk Road, right? And he made a lifeline all the way down to Yemen and smack in the middle is Mecca, right? So Mecca became on the grid. It's connected now to the lifeline. And so Hashim became extremely wealthy. That's why he could feed the people. That's why he could known as Hashim. He became extremely wealthy because he fed all of the pilgrims. Because he was the one who instituted Rihlat al-Shita'i wa Saif And Allah mentions to the Quraysh, I blessed you with this. The whole surah is revealed. لِإِلَافِ قُرَيْشِ إِلَافِهِمْ رِحْلَةَ الشِّتَاءِ وَالصَّيْفِ فَلْيَعْبُدُ رَبَّ هَذَا الْبَيْتِ الَّذِي يَطْعَمَهُمْ مِنْ جُوعٍ وَآمَنَهُمْ مِنْ خَوْفٍ I am the one who gave you the money so that you're no longer hungry. So that you're no longer fearful. I gave you the protection of the Kaaba. It is also said that Hashim uh, understood that because he's from the Quraysh and because they are the neighbors of Mecca, nobody would harm them. And so he took advantage of the fact that in a lawless society, him being from Quraysh and Mecca actually gave him protection. Nobody robbed the caravan because you can't possibly rob the caravan going to Mecca, can you? Right? Even the pagans felt a little bit of like these people are too holy for us. So Allah says, This honor, this sanctity, this custom, who gave it to you? And it is also said that he struck a deal with the kings of Rome and, and Yemen that to basically you know, protect them when they're in their lands and to give good deals. So basically he's a businessman and he struck gold. And of course Allah blessed him with this because again, look, Qusay did the politics, Hashim did the wealth, and then Abdul Muttalib did the prestige and the, the, the Zamzam. All of this, every one of the ancestors of the Prophet changed the course of the Quraysh history. And of course it's building up because what is prestige of lineage other than what your ancestors have done, right? Why are Rockefeller and Kennedy famous? It's because of what people have done one, one generation after the other. If they didn't do it, they wouldn't be Rockefellers and Kennedys, right? They'd just be like Tom, Dick and Harry after that, right? So how is the prestige or the lineage built? It's what the ancestors do. And in the case of our Prophet each and every ancestor is doing something that is absolutely uh, amazing. And Hashim, 
uh, was extremely wealthy and he was also very generous and of course this wealth it created jealousy especially amongst his uh, brother uh, Abd al-Shams and his nephew Umayyah, Umayyah ibn Abd al-Shams and this rivalry between the Banu Umayyah and the Banu Hashim would continue up until Islam and post-Islam with the Abbasids and the Umayyads as well. That rivalry was established in his uh, time. And Hashim uh, married a number of women, actually almost all of these. Of course, to marry multiple women was the norm. And in fact, almost all of the ancestors of the Prophet had multiple wives. Hashim also married multiple women. One of his wives and the great-grandmother of the Prophet was from Yathrib. And this was without a doubt something that Allah of course had planned. Why would a person from Mecca marry somebody from Yathrib so that three generations from them the Prophet would have distant third cousins amongst the Ansar. Abu Ayyub al-Ansari is one of them, right? So he would have distant cousins from the Ansar. So Hashim married from Yathrib and he died on a trading trip to Gaza. Our Palestinian brothers know this very well and there is a masjid to this day called Masjid al-Sayyid Hashim, obviously, and that is why Gaza is sometimes also called Gaza to Hashim. See, to this day, it is the Gaza, the famous Gaza, the famous Gaza, Gaza, Hashim is buried there. Hashim is buried there. And the city is called the Gaza of Hashim, to this day, Gaza to Hashim. And his masjid is over there. So he died far, far away. And his son, then, because his father had died, his mother took his uh, most important son to her hometown of Yathrib and so the Prophet's grandfather was raised in the very city he would migrate to and this is of course without a doubt Allah's qadr, Allah's plan otherwise really Yathrib and Makkah don't have those strong uh, types and of course the Prophet's grandfather what's his name? Abdul Muttalib but it's not his name his name is Shaybat al-Hamd Shaybat al-Hamd Shayba is whitish hair that old people have. I'm getting it right now, mashallah, tabarakallah. Okay, I'm beginning my shaba right now. Shaba is the whitish hair. Some of you, mashallah, mashallah, tabarakallah, right? I'm not at that level yet. Uh, others of you are hiding it, mashallah, tabarakallah as well, okay? Uh, and others of you don't have to worry about anything, okay? <laughs> mashallah, you're the smartest ones, mashallah. Uh, so shaba is the whitish hair that you have when you're old. And of course, some people, some kids are born. There are some kids who are just born. So he was born with a whitish streak. So they said, this is the Shayba of praise, Shaybat al-Hamd. So they called him Shaybat al-Hamd. And this uh, was his name, Shaybat al-Hamd. He grew up in uh, Yathrib because his father had passed away. And when, and his mother actually didn't even tell his, his uh uh, the, his uh, uncles that she was pregnant because she was worried that the child would be taken away. So when she was pregnant, her husband died, she went back to Yathrib. And then the child's born there, now she's happy, that's safe. Because you know, in those days, child custody goes to the stronger and Quraysh is the stronger. So she went back, she lived a quiet life. One day it is said that uh, the uncle of uh, Shaybat al-Hamd, and his name is Muttalib, his name is Muttalib, the uncle, was visiting Yathrib and he saw Shaybat al-Hamd and he said, this is my blood. Now, it's very true actually, that in those days, and even now, they had this gift of recognizing, this is not a Yathribite, this is not an Anzal, this is a Qurashi. And he found out, turns out, oh, this is the woman that my brother married, so he realized this is my nephew. And so he concocted a plot, long story, and he basically, literally abducted the child. 
like the relatives would not have let him go. And he coaxed the child that you are ancestors, your ancestor and so and so, you have a great lineage, you will, you will, uh, you know, you will reclaim, reclaim your honor. Some say that even the mother was convinced, others say even the mother did not know, but definitely the uncles did not know, meaning the uncles in Yathrib. And he took the child and dashed away on the camel and he rushed back to Mecca. And when the people saw him with a young lad, they assumed the young lad was a new slave he had purchased. So that is why they called him, oh, this is Muttalib has an Abd, Abdul Muttalib. Muttalib is his uncle. Muttalib is his uncle. And the name stuck, and therefore he is called Abdul Muttalib. And Abdul Muttalib uh, initially had a bit of a struggle with some of his uncles and cousins because his father had died. And his uncles had taken the lion's share of the wealth. But Abdul Muttalib proved himself with his own uncles and inherited his father's share of the grandfather's wealth. Uh, and managed to carve out for himself an entire legacy. And we're going to just quickly gloss over the story of Abdul Muttalib, even though it is very important. But this is a story that has been told and retold so many times. I'll just quickly mention the three main things that happened in his lifetime uh, and uh, the details. Unfortunately, I will have to just gloss over for this lecture because we do not have uh, time. Uh, actually, I'm condensing two lectures into one because we did two different lectures and they were not recorded. Uh, the three main things that happened in the lifetime of Abdul Muttalib is number one, the rediscovery of Zamzam. Number two, his vow to sacrifice Abdullah. And number three, the incident of Abraha and the elephants. And these are stories well known to every Muslim, right? But I'll just quickly gloss over them, especially details we do not know. Uh, so we understand why Zamzam uh, was, was, was uh, covered up. And how therefore did Abdul Muttalib discover Zamzam? That he saw it in a dream. Allah showed him in a dream that if you go to such and such a place next to this idol between that uh, sto stone and marker, because there was idols around the Kaaba, uh, if you go to this place and you dig, you will find Zamzam. Initially he ignored the dream, but he kept on seeing it, seeing it, seeing it, until finally he realized this is from Allah. And so uh, at the time he only had one son, Harith, and Harith is his oldest son. And so his kunya is Abu al-Harith. Abdul Muttalib's kunya is Abu al-Harith. And so he took his one son and himself and he took a shovel and an axe and began digging. And the Quraysh of course are mocking him. You think you're going to discover Zamzam after we haven't found it for three, four hundred years? And he kept on digging, digging, digging until he struck something far more precious than gold, far more precious than oil. He struck water. And as we all know the story, when the water began bubbling up, the Quraysh surrounded him. His own relatives. And they said, this is our property now. And he refused and he said, no, I discovered it. I have the rights. Now again, it's not as if he's not going to give them water, but there comes power and there comes prestige by claiming this. Both power and prestige. And he knows this. And they surround him and war is about to break out. This is a civil, not a war, but I mean, you know, a scuffle that might lead to death. And that's when he makes a vow to Allah that, oh Allah, if you ever give me 10 sons to defend me, then I promise I'll sacrifice one for you. That's when he does this. Uh, but in it, they don't want to fight him. Uh, and so they agree. They agree to go to a fortune teller who is their priestess. So of course, their religion is paganism. Who is their sheikh? Who is their elder? It's a priestess far, far away. That's the senior most pagan, uh, you know, whatever. Yeah, like, you know, the Hindus have their pundits, whatever. So they have their hierarchy. So they agree they will go to such and such a lady. And uh, on the way there, 
on the way there, there they get lost actually, and they're about to die. On the way there, they, all of them, they were all cousins and relatives, they're all they're about to die. So much so that Abdul Muttalib says, each one of you should dig his own grave because we're too weak to bury the graves, to bury each other. So they dig their, uh, their own graves. And as Abdul Muttalib is digging his own grave, he strikes water again. And so his cousins and, and a distant Quraysh said, this is a sign from Allah that the water is yours because this water saved us. So without going to the priestess, they then come back and they voluntarily gave the rights of Zamzam to Abdul uh, Muttalib. And then of course, as we all know, eventually Abdul Muttalib has how many children? How many children does Abdul Muttalib have? Fifteen, huh? Sixteen. Eighteen. 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 He has 18 children, eventually, with, mashallah, five or six women. Uh, and so he has 12 sons and six daughters. 12 sons and six daughters. And then, to be honest, he probably had more than 12 sons and six daughters because in those days, people, kids died in their youth. But 12 sons who lived to become adults and six daughters who lived to become uh, adults. And the ones that we are most familiar with, we don't really know much about most of them, to be honest. They died even before the coming of the Prophet Because remember, Abdullah, Abdullah was one of his youngest, not the youngest, but one of his youngest sons, right? So Hadith actually died, actually died in the life of Abdul Muttalib. And the majority of his sons died because Abdul Muttalib lived almost to the age of 100. Almost to the age of 100 he lived. That's a very old age, especially for that time when the average age was probably 30, 40, 50 years old. So he lived almost to the age of 100. So uh, Hadith was his eldest. And then Zubair, Abdullah, and Abu Talib were from the same mother. Zubair, Abdullah, and Abu Talib were from the same uh, mother. Then Abbas and Dirar from another mother. Then Hamza and Muqawwam and Hajjal from another mother. And then Abu Lahab all by himself from one mother. So Abu Lahab is by himself. And he has six daughters, uh, Safiya. Uh, uh, and of course, Safiya is the only one of his aunts who accepted Islam. Uh, as for the other aunts, we only know of Atika who was alive when the Prophet began preaching and then she simply disappears from the seerah. We don't know whether she accepted Islam. To be frank, most likely she didn't. That's what seems to be the case. And then we have Umm Hakim and then we have Umayma and Umayma is the mother of Zainab bint Jahsh, her, the cousin that he married. Zainab bint Jahsh, how was she a cousin through Umayma? So she was his father's sister's daughter. Okay, uh, And then we have Arwa and Barra. These are the six daughters of Abdul Muttalib. So, we all know the story, I'll quickly gloss over it, that when all of these sons reach adulthood, he tells them to vow, and he says, look, I'm a man of my word, Allah bless me, and I have to give one of you up to Allah to sacrifice you. And that's when, as you know, he took Abdullah in front of the Kaaba, and the Quraysh said, you cannot do this, he is the most beloved, he was probably, Abdullah was probably 17 at the time, uh, 16 or 17, and so they said, you know what, why don't you go to such and such priestess, another of their elite priestesses, and see if there's a way out. And that is when uh, the one 100 camels was instituted as you all know the story I'll quickly gloss over that one and this is when the life of a person became equivalent to 100 camels which is still the sharia to this day that if you do a manslaughter or accidental murder or accidental manslaughter uh, or intentional murder uh, you have to pay 100 camels as blood money to this day 
And if you want to do the modern equivalent, you literally calculate the cost of a camel in US dollars. That's what the Sharia will say. And then you didn't put that price and say that's the cost of a, a person's life if you accidentally kill somebody or whatnot. Where did this 100 camels come from? It comes from this incident that the Sharia came and then confirmed it. That this is the price of one man, 100 uh, camels. And then the third and final story, uh, which is the story of, uh, of Abraha. And our quickly final story, inshallah ta'ala. And that is that... Uh, Abraha was the governor uh, was the governor of Yemen under Najashi. So Najashi, not the same Najashi as the one that the Prophet Sahaba emigrated to, but his father. Uh, that Najashi had conquered some areas of Yemen, and he had sent his governor, and his governor's name was Abraha. So Abraha was the governor of the Najashi in Yemen, and he saw his people every year go north. So he said, where are you guys going? So they said, we have to go to Hajj. We have to go to Hajj. He said, why? What is there? He said, there's the house of Allah. So he said, I will build you a house that is far better than any of your houses and you will come for Hajj under here. So he built a massive uh, cathedral because they were Christians and it was out of glass and out of, can you imagine in Arabia to bring stained glass? because they had access to these architects and whatnot. And he built a cathedral in Yemen, the likes of which he thought would become the biggest temple uh, of Christianity in the entire Arabian Peninsula. And he then said, all of you have to come over here rather than going to up north to the Kaaba. And when one of the Bedouins heard this, he went there, but he went there to relieve himself, number one and number two, right? And he went there and he did that. And he became so angry, Abraha, that he said, as revenge, I will destroy this house so people must come to my house. And that is why he uh, gathered together his army. And of course, because they were from Abyssinia, so they had elephants. Otherwise, elephants did not live in the Arabian Peninsula as natural beasts over there. But because he was from Africa, so he had a group of African elephants. And of course, the people of Africa had trained the elephants to be uh, instruments of war. And uh, this was when he marched uh, to the uh, Kaaba and he uh, went with his army uh, of around they say some say eight and some say 20 elephants uh, and the chief elephant by the way his name was Mahmoud Mahmoud was the name of the chief elephant and uh, it is also said that he hired a Arab guide to take him to the Kaaba and this guide his name was Abu Rughal Abu Rughal and Abu Rughal became infamous for treachery because to trade your honor for money and to lead Abraha through the ways to get to the Kaaba. And so there's an expression in Arabic which I don't think the Arabs still use. Uh, they say uh, more treacherous than Abu Rughal. I don't think you have this anymore, right? Okay, so this was common in the time of the process and later on, this was a classical Arabic saying more treacherous than Abu Rughal. Abu Rughal is this person from that uh, example. Uh, and Abraha came uh, with, uh, with the entire army. As you know, he, when he got to Mecca, he captured the livestock of Abdul Muttalib, over 200 camels and sheep, which by the way shows you Abdul Muttalib is a rich man now. Times have changed for the Quraysh. MashaAllah, money is flowing in. And you all know the story that Abdul Muttalib came. And this is where we read the description of Abdul Muttalib. That he was a tall man, six foot tall maybe, huge, far taller than any of the other Arabs. And he was handsome and admirable. And there's no denying, and this is scientifically proven as well, that those people who are 
uh, handsome or women who are beautiful, they actually get leadership positions. This is a scientific study. The Qadr of Allah Azza wa Jal, you just automatically give uh, respect or whatnot to uh, people who are looking better. And Abdul Muttalib was one such person. Very handsome, very strong, very tall. He looked like a leader. So much so it is said when he entered into the tent that uh, Abraha was in awe of this man. So tall and handsome, he actually stood up from his chair and sat down on the floor with Abraha as a manner of respect. That Abraha, the chieftain of Mecca, has come. And he said, as you all know the famous story, I'll very go quickly over it, that he said to Abraha, or sorry, he said to Abdul Muttalib, I have no problem with you. You just get out of the city and I'll destroy your house. And I have no problem with you guys. There's nothing personal. I just want to destroy your house of worship. It's nothing against uh, you. And that's when Abdul Muttalib said, I didn't come to you to talk about the house. I didn't come to you to talk about the Kaaba. I came to you to talk about my camels. And this is when Abraha lost all respect for Abdul Muttalib. And he said, I have come to destroy your holy house. And you're coming to talk to me about your camels. And by the way, this shows us, subhanAllah, that even though Abdul Muttalib didn't come back with the right, with the right punch, he didn't come back with the one-liner yet. But what does it show? When you stand up for your principles, people will respect you. Even though both of them are different religions and pagans, but still, Abraha thought Abdul Muttalib is going to argue about his house. And so he was honoring him. Then when he said, I want my camels, he said, I lost all respect for you. That's when, Abraha, that's when Abdul Muttalib gives the, the one-liner punch, the, the upper right cut, and he says that it's not my business. The, the house has a lord who will protect it, and the camels have a lord, and it's my job to protect the camels. Right? So because of this one-liner, Abraha gave the camels back, and that was when the, the Quraysh left the city after making lots of dua. Abdul Muttalib is pleading in front of the Kaaba, Oh Allah, we cannot fight this army. They're too strong for us. They have these elephants. They have these thousand men, whatever. You take care of it. And they then left to the mountains. And this is when they faced Mahmud uh, to the, uh, the Kaaba. And they are telling him to go and go and go. And he would not go. Even if they whipped him, they beat him, they bled him. And the camel or the elephant would not move. But whenever they turned him in any other direction, he would move in that direction. And that is why in the Treaty of Hudaybiyyah, when the Prophet's camel stopped, what did he say? Don't get angry at my camel. The same one who stopped the elephant from entering Mecca has stopped my camel as well. There's a wisdom, right? So Allah stopped the camel the, the elephant from entering and as they're debating what to do that is when large birds came so stones from Jahannam imagine stones from Jahannam in this world they're coming and in front of their eyes every stone hits an animal and a person and he literally dissolves his skin dissolves and he becomes a pile of broken and molten flesh in front of the eyes of the people of uh, Quraysh. And it is said that Abraha himself suffered the worst fate and they carried him back and his skin is dissolving the entire way and he dies right before reaching his home in, uh, in Yemen uh, so that he suffers the worst punishment that he's just about there and then he dies and he is buried over there. And uh, it is mentioned that uh, the traces of the elephant still were there when the Prophet was uh, born. And one of the Sahaba, his name is Qubath ibn Ashyam. Qubath ibn Ashyam has a very famous narration in Sunan at-Tirmidhi where uh, Abdul, um, 
is it Abdul Malik ibn Umayyad? One of the Umayyad caliphs, one of the early Umayyad caliphs asks him that, uh, are you bigger or the Prophet is bigger? Meaning in age. And he means in age. So Qubath says, Rasul akbar minni minhu. The Prophet is bigger than me, but I was born before him. Meaning, don't say, are you bigger or not? The Prophet is bigger than me, but I was born before him. Why? Because I remember my mother taking me and showing me the defecations of the elephants that had withered and become yellow. I saw the elephants and their defecations when I was a young boy. So he's trying, and of course the Prophet was born, was born in the year of the elephant. The fact that Qubath remembers this, so he's saying, I'm older than him. How did he prove he's older? I remember my mother showing me the remnants of the uh, elephants. And Aisha mentions and recalls that uh, when she was a young child in Mecca, uh, she remembered seeing one of the guides of the elephant that had come from Yemen who had been blinded and was living as a beggar, cursed obviously to the end of his days and begging the people for any morsel of food. So she says, I remember one of the guides, he must have been a young man at the time, now he's an old man about to die and he's still begging for food. This is punishment. Obviously this is the worst punishment uh, that you're now blinded and you have no other means. So Aisha remembers seeing that to conclude. So the story especially of our lineage of the Prophet it proves very clearly that something momentous is about to happen every single person in the lineage of the Prophet establishes something of momentous value, whether it's economic, whether it's political, whether it's just a discovery of water. And clearly, therefore, when we now understand why the Prophet was chosen by Allah and Allah chose his lineage in this manner, that nobody in the world has a more noble and prestigious lineage. And that is why in the Battle of Hunayn, what did our Prophet say? I am the Prophet, there's no doubt. I am the son of Abdul Muttalib. So he is invoking his lineage here because the Quraysh were still new in Islam. And he's telling them, I am that grandson of the person you are so proud of. And can you imagine the prestige of Abdul Muttalib? That it is under his leadership. He makes dua to Allah and Allah sends the birds of Ababil and he discovers Zamzam. And so this prestige of Abdul Muttalib. There was no chieftain in all of Arabia as prestigious as Abdul Muttalib, not just because of him, but because of his father and grandfather and great-grandfather. And so to be born to the most beloved son of Abdul Muttalib, that's Abdullah, to be born to the most beloved son and to be raised by him for eight years. So all of this is of course a preparing for the Prophet And also we have over here as well uh, the fact that uh, two of the ancestors of the Prophet were ransomed off and saved. The first is the beginning of the chain, Ismail, and the second is the end of the chain, Abdullah. So both the beginning and the end were ransomed off by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this is clearly an indication that Allah Azza wa is blessing this ancestry. And the fact that there's also some, uh, some hidden wisdom here, uh, some semi-mystical wisdom here, that we have a Christian attacking a pagan, Abraha attacking Abdul Muttalib. And the Kaaba is the subject of attack. And neither of them is able to defend. In fact, the one is attacking and the other cannot defend. And Allah defends the Haram 
and who was living in the haram at the time, Amina, and she must have been pregnant with our Prophet So quite literally, because he's born in the same year, a few months later, so this means Amina, when the incident of Fil takes place, our Prophet is literally in the womb of Amina. So there's a huge symbolism here that Allah Himself protects, not just the Kaaba, but what else? Our Prophet wasallam, and this is it is as if to indicate that the Mushrikun could not protect the Kaaba. They're not worthy of the Kaaba. So Allah Subhanahu wa Taala destroyed those who attempted to harm it because there will come now somebody who will be worthy of the Kaaba. The Quraysh have not been worthy to the level they deserve. So somebody will now come, and that is our Prophet wasallam, who purified it of its idols, who made it the Qibla, and who returned it to the glory that it was, and that is the uh, initial house that Ibrahim salam built. And with that, we come to the conclusion of our quick summary of two uh, halaqas, insha'Allah ta'ala. And we had mentioned the idolatry that was rampant amongst them and how that idolatry began. And there was one final point that was left that time did not allow us to uh, elaborate on. And I think it is very relevant and very important because this aspect demonstrates to us what our religion is. And it demonstrates to us the meaning of La ilaha illallah. Now, the interesting thing about the Jahili Arabs, the Arabs before Islam, was that they actually believed in the same God that we believe in, by the same name and the same attributes, and that is Allah. You see, they never depicted Allah as an idol. They made idols of Allah, of Al-Uzza, of Manat, of Hubal. They made idols of all of these beings, but they never made an idol of Allah. There was no idol called Allah, because they knew that Allah could not be represented by an idol. And they knew that Allah was their creator and their originator and their sustainer. Allah says in the Quran, if you were to ask them who created you, they would say Allah created us. If you were to ask them who sends the rain from the heavens, they would say Allah. If you were to ask them who supplies you your rizq, your food, they would say Allah. The Quran says if you were to ask them who is the Lord of the heavens and earth, they would say Allah. And this is interesting because their paganism is not like the paganism of modern religions. If you ask them who is their God, they will say Krishna or Buddha or something. These are groups who say, no, Allah is our God. And Allah is our creator. And Allah is our sustainer. And yet they are not Muslims. And we don't consider them to be Muslims. Even though they say there is no creator other than Allah. And there is no sustainer other than Allah. And there is no Lord other than Allah. So when the Prophet is coming to them, he's not coming with a new God. He's not coming with a new deity. They know it is Allah who created them. Yet why are they not Muslim? Well, because they're worshipping idols. Well, why are they worshipping idols when they know that Allah created them? The Quran tells us, Surah Zumur verse 3, Surah Zumur verse 3, Allah says, that if you were to ask them, why are you worshipping these beings? They say, مَا نَعْبُدُهُمْ إِلَّا لِيُقَرِّبُونَ إِلَى اللَّهِ زُلْفَى We're only worshipping these beings, so that they can bring us closer to Allah. Notice the ultimate goal is Allah. These beings are stepping stones, they're intermediaries.
They're simply tools we use to get to the grand deity, and that is Allah. Surah Yunus, verse 18. Allah says, they worship besides Allah these beings that are useless. And they say, these beings are our intercessors between us and Allah. Our intermediaries. You see, we're too sinful. We're too unholy. And these beings are holy beings. So we go through them to get to the holiest of holy, and that is Allah. Now notice here, this is very important because their shirk was not in rejecting Allah. It was not in saying, Allah and Al-Uzza created me. It was not in saying that Allah and Al-Uzza will resurrect me. No, they firmly believed Allah is the creator, sustainer, nourisher, everything. By name Allah, not Rama, Krishna, Buddha, Allah. Yet they're worshipping other than Allah and they say, we're too sinful. We need to use intermediaries to get to Allah. Now this is important because unfortunately, we have Muslims in our times who fall prey to the exact same mentality. Word for word, letter for letter. We're sinful people. Change Allah to Wali. Change Uzza to Shaykh. Change Manat to Peer. And you get the exact same concept. We're too sinful people. We can't worship Allah directly. He's too holy. So we have to go through the saint. Or they will say, we have to go through the Prophet We worship this being. We make prayer to this being. We sacrifice to this being. We invoke the blessings of this being because this being has a high status with Allah. He will plead our case to Allah. And all of us who have family back home, we know that this is unfortunately common amongst uh, the Muslims around the world. And this mentality is exactly the mentality of the Jahili Arabs. It is exactly the same. And this is compounded by the fact that if somebody says, how dare you compare Apir to Alat? How do you compare my Shaykh to Alat? The response is, what is Alat except Apir and a Shaykh? What is Alat? Do you know the origins of Alat? Alat was a... Allah was the main idol of Ta'if, right? We said last time, what is the main idol of Mecca? Who can remind me? Hubal. The main idol of Mecca is Hubal. And this was the original idol. Where did it come from? Who can remind me? Syria. From the Amalekites, the Amaliqa. Came from the Amaliqa. So this is the original idol that was there until the Prophet uh, got rid of it in the conquest of Mecca. Then the second major idol was Allah. And that was in Ta'if. These were the two main idols. Allah and Hubal. And then Manat was the, uh, the third and Uzza. So these are the main idols. Now, Alat, what, what is Alat? Alat was a man who used to feed to the pilgrims a type of soup. And the word for making soup in Arabic is Latta Yaluttu. And Alat is the one who grinds. Alat is the one who basically does the thing to make the soup. The barley, you grind it and then you make the soup out of it. It's not his name, it's his title. And this was a man who would stand on the road towards Mecca and everybody who went there, he would, he was a generous man, he would feed them. And so they called him Alat, the one who gives the soup, the one who feeds, the one who makes the barley for the soup, Alat. When he died, they said, let's commemorate him. He's a good man, he's a righteous man. So they build a monument, a mausoleum. And in our religion, we're not supposed to build a monument on a grave because of this reason. Exactly because of this reason. So they said, let's commemorate him. He was a good man. So they built a big structure. 
And what happens when you build a big structure on a grave? People come, they rub their bodies on it, they put their hands on it, they want to get blessings, and bit by bit, slowly but surely, it becomes an idol and a god that is worshipped besides Allah. So what is Allah except a holy man, a righteous person? And we already mentioned before that the most common being who is invoked on earth besides Allah is Jesus Christ. The most common being that is worshipped besides the true God is Jesus Christ. What is Jesus Christ? An evil being or a good being? He's a good being. He is one of the greatest of all prophets and messengers. You see, the slippery slope doesn't occur with evil people. I mean, how few people worship shaitan, right? The satanists, how few are they? And yet look at how many people worship Jesus Christ in the billions. Because it's easy to slip with a good man. You put him above his place. You take him to a status above what he deserves. And this is what our religion came to prohibit. No, you don't worship anybody including the Prophet Muhammad You don't go through him to get to Allah, meaning you don't direct your prayers through him. You take him as a role model, and you don't take him as another god, a demi-god, a semi-god. So it is important that we understand that the shirk of the Jahili Arabs was a very unique type of shirk. It is not the shirk of, let's say, the Hindus or the Buddhists or the Zoroastrians. Because these groups, they believe in another god besides Allah. They don't believe in Allah. The god of the Arabs was the god of Abraham and Ismail and Ishaq, and that is Allah. That is the god that we believe in. Their shirk was not in rejecting him. It was in affirming him as being too holy. We can't get to him directly. We have to go indirectly. And it's very important that we as Muslims therefore understand what our religion is about. And that is there are no intermediaries between us and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that was a point related to the last lesson. Now we now move on to today's lesson. And we begin by pointing out, well, we just talked two lessons about how evil Jahili Arabia was, how bad it was. And next week, uh, we're going to continue this. Uh, Dr. Bashar is going to be speaking next week. I won't be here. He'll talk about the social circumstances of Arabia. Uh, and, and again, so many evils taking place in Arabia. Now, if Arabia was so bad, was so evil, why did Allah choose Arabia and the Arabs for the Prophet to come in? I mean, why didn't He choose the Romans who were the mightiest civilization? Or the Persians who had an ancient civilization? Why didn't He choose another nation? Why in the back can't say backwaters, the back sands of Arabia. Why in this desert, in this nomadic lifestyle that didn't have a civilization, it didn't have a script, it didn't have anything, it didn't even have a government. Why did Allah choose this society to send the last prophet? Well, there are many wisdoms that we can derive, that we can glean from choosing these groups of people. First and foremost, the Arabs and Arabia was in between the two major superpowers of the time. And those were the Sassanids and the Byzantine Empire. Right, the Eastern Roman or the Byzantine Empire, and the Sassanids or the Persians. The Romans and the Persians are simplified. Uh, the more correct is the, the Byzantine and the, the Sassanids. So Arabia is smack in the middle. Or you can say s southmost, but it is in between. Wars are taking place right above Arabia, in the Syrian hemisphere or, or, or land. Wars are taking place for 400 years between the Byzantines and the Sassanids. Arabia is right there in the middle. Additionally, so it's geographically very uniquely situated. It's connected to the two greatest international superpowers. Yet it is distinct. Connected, but distinct. And subhanAllah, what happened in 30, 40 years? Arabia conquered these two superpowers, right? Had Arabia been in China, it would not have been able to conquer these two superpowers. By being connected and yet separate, just on the border. The very first lands of conquest, Allah willed that these two mighty nations, 
be conquered by the Muslims within 20 years, within 30 years after the death of the Prophet in the time of Umar ibn al-Khattab as you all know. Additionally, the Arabs did not have a history of colonialism or aggressive behavior. Because the Arabs were busy fighting amongst themselves, they never challenged Rome, they never challenged Persia. So when the Arab armies first marched towards Rome and Persia, i.e. after Islam, the Romans and the Persians were laughing. Who are these Bedouins wanting to attack us? And it is said that the, the Sassanid emperor treated uh, Sa'd and, and, and the other uh, Muslim leaders as children. Because are you gone crazy? Your armies are going to attack us? Go back and we'll give you some gold coins if you want. I mean, don't, don't bother. They treated them like kids because they couldn't believe that a group is coming from Arabia. Uh, the Arabs never had a colonialist influence. They never were aggressive to the superpowers. So it was a surprise completely coming out of this land. Another point is that the fact that the Arabs did not have their own unique civilization. Now what do I mean by civilization? Some people ask me, what do you mean they didn't? I, when, when I say they didn't have civilization, I mention certain uh, uh, benchmarks of a civilization. The first benchmark is a unified government. If you don't have a unified government, you don't have law and order in society. I mean, that's the first benchmark of a civilization. You have a unified government. And then another benchmark is literature, arts, architecture. Now, the Arabs did not have literature, they had poetry, which is one step less. They did not have written literature per se, because they didn't have reading and writing. Right? Another benchmark is, is architecture, buildings. The Arabs did not have buildings. They didn't build anything of lasting significance. Whereas the Romans, I mean to this day, the, the Hagia Sophia, uh, it was built before the Prophet by a hundred years. And it is still a marvel that we go in and we look at. You know, in, in, in Istanbul and in Constantinople. And other places, the, the, the palaces of Persia, they're still around. Uh, per, uh, Parasopolis, outside, outside of uh, uh, Tehran. They're still around. You can go and see them. Magnificent structures. The Arabs at the time didn't have that. So again, I mean, I'm not trying to, I mean, some people, they, apparently there were one or two people that felt a bit offended when I said this. But it's the fact that Islam came and gave the Arabs izzah. Instead of being offended, they should take pride. That Islam came and made the Arabs the, the, the top nation. Before Islam came, the Arabs were considered to be a backward Bedouin nation. And they were like that. And Allah says in the Quran, لَقَدْ أَنزَلْنَا إِلَيْكُمْ كِتَابًا فِيهِ ذِكْرُكُمْ We have given you a book, in it is your legacy. Your dhikr, your legacy will be through this book. This is in the Qur'an. That you didn't have a legacy before this book came. Before this book came, you weren't anything. Now when this book comes, لَقَدْ أَنزَلْنَا إِلَيْكُمْ كِتَابًا فِيهِ ذِكْرُكُمْ This will give you a legacy that people will look up to you by. Right? So this book came and civilized the Arabs. So the fact that the Arabs didn't have this civilization, they didn't have a unified government, they didn't have all of these factors, when Islam came, it made it easier for the Arabs to develop a unique and their own culture and civilization. There was no competition. If Islam had come to the Romans, it would have been very problematic. Because they have their entire structure up and running. And for Islam to come there, you have to then fight the status quo. In Arabia, you can say there's somewhat of a vacuum. There is no status quo to fight. So when the Prophet unites the Arabs for the first time, the, 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 the wars that he's undertaking are relatively small. There's no mighty unified government that's attacking him. And this is of the blessings of Allah that he chose Arabia for this. The first time the Arabs were ever united is under the Prophet They were never united before him. He came and he united all the Arabs. 
all the descendants of Ismail. Before this, they were not united. And so the fact that they didn't have a civilization is in fact a blessing in disguise. Because then Islam came and brought that civilization. And a unique Islamic civilization with its own language, its own literature, its own script, its own coinage even, its own everything came. Everything, even its own architectural style, as you know. The Umayyads had their own, the Abbasids had their own, the Andalusi, all of this came. It came because there was a vacuum. And so the Arabs came and they filled that vacuum with Islam, and they then brought forth a new civilization. Another benefit and wisdom of sending the Prophet to uh, Arabia was the fact that, because, and we, we referenced this slightly before, because of the internal warfare amongst the Arabs, and their relative backward state, the rise of a political entity from Arabia was completely unexpected. Nobody could have predicted that there will be a political force coming from Arabia. It is as if right now, somebody pointed to one of the lowest uh, GDP countries, let's say on the index, right? Uh, one of the sub-Saharan countries, let's say, and said in five years, this will be the superpower of the world. Right now, everybody's thinking it's China or this or that. We have two, three names. And then right at the bottom, there's one or two names. Imagine if somebody said, no, 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 all of that is wrong. It's going to be one of those countries at the bottom. It's not even a threat. Nobody's thinking about it. So the Arabs and the, uh, the, the Romans and the Persians were completely uh, unprepared for the Arabian conquest. Also, another point of benefit is that Mecca was the site of the first house built for the worship of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And it was the place of Ibrahim and Ismail. Therefore, it was most appropriate that Mecca become the place of the first universal religion. Because Islam is the first universal religion. Every other religion that Allah revealed, which is now called Judaism or Christianity, these are revealed religions, they were local. They weren't meant to be universal. We believe uh, that Jesus Christ did not come for all of the world. He came for the children of Israel. We believe that Moses was not sent for all of mankind. He was sent for only the Jews. Yet the Prophet was sent for the entire world. So it is befitting that his place be the place where the first house of worship was ever built on earth. We already said two weeks ago that Allah says in the Quran, the first house of worship was the one built in Bakka, which became Mecca. This is the first masjid ever built on earth by humanity, by Ibrahim. So it is befitting that the first universal call come from that very valley, from that very sanctuary, from that very house. Yet another benefit of why Allah chose the Arabs is that even though the Arabs did not have certain qualities, they had other qualities that made them very good to be receptive to that message. Of those qualities was the purity of spirit. Purity of spirit. They were not polluted by philosophical indoctrinations. They didn't have other... They were simple people. And being simple has its positives and its negatives, right? Being simple has its positives and negatives. And of the simple, of the positives of being simple is that when truth comes, you accept it more easily. You're not clouded by philosophical baggage, if you like. You don't have lots of weird ideas. You're a simple person and that's why generally speaking, even in society, subhanAllah, the first converts are always the sincere sincere, innocent people. This is the first converts. They're always the sincere people. Not the ones who are convoluted, not the ones who have... No, it's just simple. Another benefit that the Arabs had was that they were a people who were so used to hardship, so used to lack of food and lack of water and, and everything, that this of course helped the armies in, early, in the early conquest of Islam. You see the Romans and the Persians were spoiled troops. These were troops that needed supply lines. 
These were troops that had lots of armor, lots of baggage with them. Now the Arabs, they didn't have all of this. And they're used to traveling in the desert for long distances with small amounts of water, small amounts of food. And early Islamic conquest needed that. It needed that stamina that neither the Arabs, that neither the Romans nor the Persians had. And so Allah chose a group that He knew would be able to benefit Islam in its early time. Also the Arabs had characteristics that were very positive, bravery. They were not cowards. They were brave people. They were proud and in a sense pride can be negative and pride can be positive. If you're proud of something that is worthy to be proud of, if you're proud of being a Muslim, this is positive. And if you're proud of being of something that is racist or something, this is negative. So having an element of pride sometimes is good. They were also honest people. The Arabs hated lying. They hated lying. They were very honest people. And there's many evidences to show this. Of them is the famous story of Abu Sufyan with Heraclius, which we referenced uh, last week when we talked about the emperor of Rome met Abu Sufyan. Right? And he asked him a series of questions. And we didn't mention in a lot of detail. But Abu Sufyan was brought in front of Heraclius. And the rest of the caravan remained behind him. Because Abu Sufyan... Because the Heraclius knew that Abu Sufyan is an enemy to the Prophet. He's not a believer in the Prophet. So Heraclius wanted to make sure that Abu Sufyan is speaking the truth. So he put the back of Abu Sufyan, all of the people of Quraysh were at his back, the caravan. And he's facing Heraclius. And then he told the interpreter to the people behind Abu Sufyan, if Abu Sufyan lies, make a motion to me that he's lying. Tell me that he's lying. Now they're all pagans. They're all, they're all you know, uh, idol worshippers. None of them are Muslims. Abu Sufyan said, Were it not for the fact that my people would have sh accused me of being a liar, I would have invented lies against the Prophet at that point in time. I didn't want to tell the truth. I didn't want to say all of these things because they're all positive. Is he the most noble? Is he honest? Is he trustworthy? Is he this? He said, Were it not for the fact that my people would call me a liar. In other words, despite being a pagan, he didn't want to be called a liar. Truthfulness, honesty was something that was prized amongst the Arabs. Also, the Arabs were sincere in their oaths. If they gave a promise, they would uphold it. We quoted last week an incident that really shows this. A promise that was upheld. Abdul Muttalib and his promise to Allah. Abdul Muttalib and his promise to Allah. Nobody is even telling him that, oh, this is a promise you made to me. He made a promise to Allah and he wanted to fulfill it. The Arabs were people who, they were people of their word. And they abided by their word. And that's why there were no written contracts in Arabia until Islam came. There was no need for it. If a man said it, that was his word. There was no need for witnesses. If a man said it, that's it. He said it. He's not going to retract on his word. So treachery was considered to be very, very evil amongst them. And the final point that we'll mention is that the Arabs were, of course, the best uh, horsemen. There was no denying this, that the Romans and the Persians could not compete neither with the horses of Arabia, nor the riders of Arabia. So the horses of Arabia were the best horses to this day, the Arabian horses. And by the way, there are a hadith about Arabian horses, by the way. And the Prophet ﷺ praised horses from Arabia, and subhanAllah, and these are hadith that are authentic. And subhanAllah, to this day, the world knows that the most prized horses are Arabian horses. And our Prophet uh, said that the best horses are uh, the Arabian horses, the horses of this peninsula. And subhanAllah, to this day, as we said, the Arabian horses are the best because our Prophet said so, so the barakah remained or the blessings remained in them. So the horses were the best and then the riders were the best. 
And they were the most accustomed to the most brutal war. They're not used to heavy armor. They're used to riding, as we said, long distances. They're used to uh, a, a very difficult type of war, which the Romans and the Persians were not going to be accustomed to. So for all of these reasons, and then of course, there is the issue of the Arabic language itself. The Arabic language is a Semitic language. And the Semitic languages are far more eloquent and powerful than languages based in Latin. Anybody who has studied Hebrew, Aramaic, those of you who have studied Arabic, you understand the transmutation of the three-letter word. All of these transmutations, this is a very Semitic issue. It's not found in the other languages. And it's a very powerful tool. If you learn one verb, let's say, from it you can derive over 200 nouns and verbs and concepts. Because the same verb will give you roots, will give you structures that you will derive over 200 different uh, nouns and adjectives and verbs and whatnot. This is an amazing language and it's a powerful language. And generally speaking, it is said that the Semitic languages are the most eloquent languages. We of course believe this theologically, but even people who are not of any theology, they say that the, the Semitic languages have a power and beauty that is not found in the other languages. Of course, Semitic languages uh, in our days is only Hebrew and Arabic that are spoken. Uh, but of course, in, in the days gone by, it was Aramaic and Syriac and, and all of these other languages are all Semitic languages. And the final reason why Allah chose, or the final reason we will mention, of course, there must be many more. The final reason that we will mention why Allah chose the Arabs is of course the most obvious one. And that is, the Prophet Ibrahim made a dua. The dua of Ibrahim as he's building the Kaaba, him and his son Ismail. And he says, Rabbana wabaath fihim rasulam minhum. O oh our Lord, we pray to you that from our progeny you send forth one prophet or messenger, Rasulam minhum, who will come to them and recite to them your signs, your ayat, and will purify them and will clean them, him, and will teach them the book and wisdom. So Ibrahim and Ismail made a dua that there should be a prophet from their progeny. Because he knew that there would be prophets from the other progeny of Ishaq. He knew this. Because Allah says in the Quran that when Sarah became pregnant, فَبَشَّرْنَاهُ بِإِسْحَاقَ وَمِنْ وَرَاءِ إِسْحَاقَ Even before Ishaq was born, and of course the Old Testament expounds upon this much more. Allah knows if it's true or not. But the, the Old Testament says that uh, the angels or the God said to Abraham that through this son of yours shall be my covenant. Now we believe there was a covenant through that son for thousands of years. But then it was transferred to the sons of Ismail. So uh, Allah says that, that when Sarah was pregnant, we will give you Ishaq. And after Ishaq, we'll give you another prophet, Ya'qub. So he's being told that there's going to be many prophets from Ishaq. And we believe that every single prophet that came after Ibrahim, up until the Prophet Muhammad came from the children of Ishaq. We believe that every prophet after the generation of Ibrahim was from the descendants of Ishaq. We believe this. We give them that privilege because Allah gave them that privilege. But we say the final prophet, only one prophet came after Ismail from his progeny and that is the Prophet Muhammad So Ibrahim makes a dua that, Oh Allah, from this son as well, I want a child. I want a prophet who will come to his people and who will come and recite the signs and purify and teach them the book. And so of course, the children of Ismail are the Arabs. And so 
the Prophet Ibrahim's dua had to be fulfilled. And that is why the main reason we can say that Allah chose the Arabs. The main reason, I left it for the last, is that the Prophet Ibrahim said, I want a prophet from this progeny, from this son. And that is indeed what uh, what Allah Azza wa gave. And that was exactly the Prophet said. That he said in an authentic hadith, Ana da'watu Abi Ibrahim. He said, I am the response of the dua that my father Ibrahim made. Ana da'watu Abi Ibrahim. I am that response of the dua. Wa ana bushra Isa ibn Maryam. And I am the glad tidings that Jesus predicted. And to this day in the New Testament, there are references that Jesus says, I must leave you for, uh, for uh, of course, the Hebrew or the uh, the Greek says, paraclete, uh, to come, has been translated in different ways. Perhaps this is a reference, and this is what some Muslim theologians say, that Jesus is saying, I have to leave for the other one to come. And the Prophet Muhammad is saying, and the Quran is saying as well, that Jesus predicted his coming. So he said, وَأَنَا بُشْرَى And I am the good news. Uh, 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 the good news has generally been translated as the gospel uh, by the Christians, but we believe that Jesus Christ predicted the coming of the Prophet Muhammad So he's saying, I am the good news that Jesus Christ uh, told would come. So he is the da'wah of Ibrahim and the bushra of Isa ibn Maryam. This is what our Prophet wasallam said. We had already pointed out that the lineage of the Prophet was the most noble lineage. We mentioned to the hadith in Sahih Muslim that the Prophet said that out of the children of Ismail, Allah chose Kinana. Out of the children of Kinana, Allah chose Quraysh. Out of the children of Quraysh, Allah chose Bani Hashim. And out of the children of Bani Hashim, Allah chose me. And so this means that the Prophet was chosen from the most noble of all lineages. And we firmly believe that there is no lineage more noble than his lineage. Let us now move on to the issue of the birth of the Prophet ﷺ. We spoke about Abdul Muttalib and his ancestors. We now get to the Prophet's direct and immediate parents. And these are of course Abdullah and Amina. Abdullah and Amina, both of them, both of them, we have but a few lines about their life and times. We have very little about them for a number of reasons. Firstly, because the both of them, as we know, lived very short lives. They both died in their early 20s maybe. Maybe even before this, 1819. Secondly, and so obviously you have a short life, you don't have a, you know, a lot of memories to leave. I mean, you have only lived a few years. Secondly, the both of them died before it was known that the Prophet is a Prophet. So nobody's recording you know, the life and times of even those 20 years. These are regular people of Quraysh, they might be noble, they might be good, but there's, not, there's no prediction that these are going to become the parents. Thirdly, when the Prophet becomes a Prophet, it's already been 40, 50 years, 40 years, right, since his parents have died. And by the time he gets to Medina, 53 years, by the time he himself passes away, 63 years, who's alive to remember what happened 63 years ago? Right? So when Islam finally reached Izza, power, when Islam finally became stable, who is living to remember those early days of Islam? And that is why we're going to come to this, inshallah, after Ramadan when we get there. We all know that the Meccan period lasted 53 years, 40 before prophecy and 13 after prophecy. Correct? 53 years. The Medinan period lasted how many years? 10 years. Now, if we were to put all of the chronicles of those 53 years in a volume, and all of the chronicles of the Medinan years in a volume, 
the Medinan volume would be three times the size of the Meccan volume. Even though the time frame for Medina is 10 years and Mecca is 53. Why? Because when Islam is stable, that's when people can record and, and write and talk and, and remember. When Islam becomes powerful, that's when it is easier to record events and remember them. When the followers become peaceful and stable, not when they're persecuted, not when Bilal is being dragged in the streets of Medina and Ammar is being tortured. I mean, they're not going to have time to remember and, and, and narrate to their children. Right? So, if this is the case of the life of the Prophet that we have one volume versus three volumes of his life, what do you think of his mother and father? So, sadly, we have very little information, much of which is legend, much of which is not quite, we don't know for sure if it's true or not, but what we do know, what we do know, inshallah we'll try to narrate it uh, that we have here. Abdullah, as we know, was the one whom... Abdul Muttalib was about to sacrifice. I already told you the story that he was saved. Right after this, immediately after the saving of, of Abdullah, Abdul Muttalib decided that he needed to choose a bride for his son. According to one report, he was 18 years old at the time. And one version says he was 20, 25 years old. But he was a young man, so a young man at the time. And Abdul Muttalib chose for him the daughter of the chief of the Banu Zuhra. The Banu Zuhra were one of the tribes of the Quraysh. We said many times, and the average Muslim is unaware of this, Quraysh is a big tribe. Within it are many small sub-tribes. We have to memorize this. Quraysh is the large tribe. Within it are many sub-tribes. The Banu Hashim is one. The Banu Zuhra is another. So the chief of the Banu Zuhra had a daughter by the name of Amina. His name was of course Wahab. So the chieftain of the Banu Zuhra was Wahab, and he had a daughter, Amina. And so Abdul Muttalib proposed on behalf of Abdullah, Abdul Muttalib proposed to Amina binti Wahab on behalf of Abdullah. And this proposal took place shortly before the caravan season, when the caravans were about to depart to Syria. Shortly before that. And so Wahab agreed, to marry his daughter to the son. So they were both chieftains, right? And so when you're the son of a chieftain, you want to marry the daughter of a chieftain. Abdul Muttalib is the chief of the, of the Banu Hashim. And uh, the chief of the, of the Banu Zuhra is uh, Wahab. And so the daughter of Wahab, Amina, and the daughter of Abdul Muttalib, Abdullah, they agreed to get married. So Abdullah got married to Amina just a few days before the caravan departed. And it is said that he barely spent three or five days with her. Before he had to go with the caravan. He spent barely a week with this new bride of his. And he then departed on the caravan. As you know, never to be seen again. So they had an extremely short marriage. Because as soon as they got married, he had to leave for the caravan. Now there are some legends here. There are some stories here that are not authentically narrated. But there's no harm in, uh, in, in mentioning them. Because there's nothing wrong with them. Now I have to point out here that... I try my best to keep authentic stories only. We need to realize that just like with any story, and our Prophet is no exception, people wanted to add legends and make it bigger and bigger. And in fact, it is very true to say that because he is the Prophet of Allah people wanted to add more details and make it more flowery than it is. Our job is to stick to the facts. Our job is to look at it academically through the science of hadith, the science of transmission. We don't let our emotions sway us. Sometimes it's okay to narrate such stories if there's nothing wrong with them. And this is one of them that their legends are mentioned that... Abdullah had a type of brightness on his face. 
he had a type of uh, nadara, it's called. And that it is also mentioned that he was a very handsome young man. And so the young uh, damsels of the Quraysh were all eager to marry him. The young ladies of the Quraysh were all eager that he would propose uh, to them. And it is said that a number of them hinted at this to him. That why don't you take me as a bride and why don't you, uh, you know, propose to me? I'll be more than willing to become your bride. And he said, I have to follow my father, whatever my father wishes. After he married Amina... Those same ladies that were uh, suggesting themselves to him to marry, they stopped taking an interest in him completely. And so he said, what is the matter? Why are you not you know, speaking with me or anything? So they said that you had a brightness in your face that no longer is there. This is what is said, meaning that after he uh, was with Amina for a while, this brightness left, meaning that obviously it's now the progeny, the Prophet Muhammad Allah knows best, this is not an authentic one, but there's no harm in narrating something like this. Nonetheless, so within a week of marriage, less than a week after marriage, he only spent a few days with Amina. He then had to leave, catch the caravan, go all the way to Syria. On the way back from Syria, he fell severely ill with the caravan, and he was slowing the caravan down. And by the time they got to Yathrib, which was later to become Medina, he said to the caravan, I'm slowing you down. I have relatives in Yathrib. I will stay with them until I recover. You go back to Mecca. Question, who were his relatives in Yathrib? How did he have relatives in Yathrib? Go back two weeks. Abdul Muttalib's what? Mother. So that's his... Grandmother. It's his paternal grandmother. Now subhanAllah, notice Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala prepared some relationship with the Prophet in the city he would go to. And this is very rare. The Quraysh married amongst themselves. It's very rare for uh, them to go to out of nowhere. Yathrib is not a city that is common for them. right? And yet Allah prepared this. There's a relationship with Yathrib. The Prophet says, and we're going to come to uh, in two weeks, he visited Yathrib as a six-year-old boy. Because his mother wanted to take him there, right? So there's a relationship with the city. Allah has in His divine plan, this prepared. And so, Abdullah says, I have my cousins here in the, uh, the, the tribe of Banu Najjar. I have my cousins here. I will stay with them until I recover. You go back to Mecca. By the time the caravan got back to Mecca, Amin is all excited. My husband's coming back. I want to tell him that I'm pregnant. And lo and behold, he's not with the caravan. So most likely Abdullah did not even know that Amina was pregnant. In fact, if we believe this version of the events, which is Ibn Sa'ad, he could not have known because he was only with her for four days. So by the time the caravan comes back, she is told that he is sick and he should be coming in a few weeks after he recovers. And then the next news comes that he has in fact passed away in Yathrib. Whatever the sickness was, we don't know. He had passed away at a very young age, 20, 22 years old. He passes away and uh, he is buried somewhere over there. Nobody knows where he is buried. Nobody has ever discovered this. No, can anybody do it now? But he's buried somewhere in uh, Yathrib. So Amina remain, becomes a widow at the age of 18, 19, young, young age, maybe even younger than this, carrying the offspring of Abdullah. And... The Prophet ﷺ is born in the famous year of the elephant. Uh, and this leads us to the issue now of the date of his birth. When exactly was he born? Now, and this is the next discussion which will last us quite a while. Because I believe that this is interesting to discuss and also has relevance to modern times. Now we, we have been told that the Prophet ﷺ was born on the 12th of Rabi'ul Awwal. And this is the commonly known date. Yet the fact of the matter is that our early historical textbooks 
mention a number of dates. And there is no unanimous agreed upon decision regarding the date of the Prophet's birth. The Prophet told us certain things that we know for sure. Of them, in the famous hadith of Sahih Muslim, that a man asked the Prophet why do you fast on Mondays? Why do you fast every Monday? He said, this was the day I was born on. And this was the day that revelation began to me. I.e. Iqra came down on Monday. So we know for a fact he was born on a Monday. Okay, that narrows down a day of the week. How about a year? Well, there are some narrations that mention the year as well. There's a beautiful narration in which Uthman ibn Affan asks one of the oldest uh, Qurashis, and his name is Qubath ibn Ashyam, after the death of the Prophet ﷺ. He asks him, أَأَنْتَ أَكْبَرُ مِنْ رَسُولِ اللَّهِ صلى الله عليه وسلم. Are you akbar? Meaning, what does akbar here mean? Older. أَأَنْتَ أَكْبَرُ Because he's an old, old man. But of course, akbar also means bigger or grander. Right? So, uh, Qubayth, uh, uh, Qubayth smiles and he goes, The Prophet ﷺ is akbar minni, but I am older than him. أَسَنُّ minhu. He changed the question because the question... Gave its, it, the, the question is alluding to the fact, are you bigger than the Prophet So he said, no, the Prophet is bigger than me, but I am older than him. And then he says, the Prophet was born Aha, we have a year now. He was born in the year of the elephant. And as for me, I remember my mother taking me outside of Mecca as a child, and I saw the dried up green dung that the elephants had left. What does this show? What does this show? That he remembers the elephant's dung, which is basically the same year, the year of the elephants, right? And the Prophet was born that year. So he's a little bit older than the Prophet and the Prophet is bigger than him. This hadith is narrated in Tirmidhi. So, uh, Qubayth therefore puts a date. Also we have uh, somebody asked another Sahabi, Suwayd ibn Ghafla, about the Prophet's birth and he said, the Prophet and I were both born the same year that we were born Am al-Fil, the year of the elephant. So from both of these narrations, we can pretty much verify that the Prophet was born in the year of the elephant. Even though there are some opinions he was born 10, 15, 20 years before, after. But these are very minuscule minority. The bulk or the vast majority of early historians said he was born in the year of the elephant. We already said the Arabs did not have a calendar. We already said that they would have a calendar based upon events. The year of the drought, the year of the invasion, the year of the elephant. And then for the next 5-10 years, they would say 2 years after the year of the elephant. And three years before the year, until something else big happened. And then they began something else, right? So this was their calendar system until Umar ibn Khattab came and said, we need a calendar. This is a part of civilization to have your calendar, right? We need a calendar. And then he made the Islamic Hijri calendar, which we follow to this day. So, pretty much we are confirmed now two things. The year of the elephant and a Monday. Okay, what is the year of the elephant? Difficult to date because we don't have any type of chronicles of the Abyssinians and what they did, but by and large, piecing together various factors that are beyond the scope of this, majority of historians say this corresponds to 570 of the Christian era. 570 of the Christian era. 570 CE, 
the Prophet was born. Now, how about the day of the... So it's the year of the elephant, fine. How about the, the month and, the, and the, the day of the month? When we look at two of the earliest books ever written about the history of the Prophet we find differing accounts. The most famous book of history is of course Ibn Ishaq. We talked about it, the seerah of Ibn Ishaq. Ibn Ishaq died 150 Hijrah. Ibn Ishaq says without any chain of narrators, he's writing from himself, that the Prophet was born on a Monday, the 12th of Rabi'ul Awwal, in the year of the elephant. So this explains why this opinion is present. He says very clearly that the Prophet was born on a Monday on the 12th of Rabi'ul Awwal in the year of the elephant. However, between him and the Prophet are 100 and almost 200 years, because remember going back to the birth of the Prophet is, is 53 before Hijrah. So between him and the birth of the Prophet is 200 years. And he doesn't tell us where he gets it from, who's narrating this to him, what is the chain of narrators. When we look at the second earliest book, and this is called the Tabaqat of Ibn Sa'd, which was written around 220 or so Hijrah, the Tabaqat of Ibn Sa'd, the Tabaqat of Ibn Sa'd says that it is said that the Prophet was born on a Monday. Some people say, I quote, he was born on the 10th of Rabi'ul Awwal. Others say he was born on the 2nd of Rabi'ul Awwal. End quote. Two opinions, neither of which conform to the 12th of Rabi'ul Awwal. Ibn Abbas, it is said, also said the 10th of Rabi'ul Awwal. Ibn Kathir, the famous historian of Islam. Ibn Kathir in his Al-Bidayah wa Nihayah says that the majority opinion is that the Prophet was born in Rabi'ul Awwal, but others have other months as well. And then scholars differed with regards to the date of his birth. One group said he was born on the 2nd of Rabi'ul Awwal, number 2nd of Rabi'ul Awwal. Ibn Kathir says this was the opinion of Abu Ma'shar al-Sindi, a famous scholar of history, died 171. It was also the opinion of Ibn Abd al-Barr, a very famous scholar of Andalus, died 463. It was also the opinion of Al-Waqidi, who died 207. Al-Waqidi is one of the most famous historians of early Islam. So we have three very early authorities saying he was born on the second of Rabi'ul al-Awwal. Ibn Kathir goes on. Another opinion is that he was born on the eighth of Rabi'ul al-Awwal. He says, this is the opinion of Ibn Hazm, famous scholar of Andalus, Imam Malik Ibn Anas, you all know Imam Malik, the scholar of Medina. And the opinion of Az-Zuhri, who is, again, I mean, I cannot explain how famous Az-Zuhri is, 128 Hijrah, and opinion of Muhammad Ibn Jubayr Ibn Mut'im, a number of famous people of the past, the 8th of Rabi' al-Awwal. Ibn Kathir moves on. A third opinion is that he was born on the 10th, on the 10th of Rabi' al-Awwal. So we have now 2nd, 8th, and 10th. The 10th of Rabi' al-Awwal. He says this is the opinion of Ibn Asakir and the opinion of Ja'far al-Sadiq. Who is Ja'far al-Sadiq? Cousin no. He's the descendant of the Prophet and the Shia consider him to be one of the Imams. He's the sixth Imam for the Shia, but he's the descendant of the Prophet So one of the descendants of the Prophet says that he was born on the 10th uh, of Rabi' al-Awwal. Ibn Kathir says the fourth opinion is that he was born on the 12th of Rabi'ul Awwal and this is the opinion of Ibn Ishaq. 
But there is no isnad on this matter. In other words, there's no chain of narrators that mentions anything about uh, the, the 12th of Rabi'ul Awwal. Ibn Kathir does say that this is the most popular opinion in his time. Ibn Kathir died 770 something, way after. In medieval Islam, 12th Rabi'ul Awwal is the most popular opinion. And from medieval Islam up until our times is the most popular. But in early Islam it was not the most popular. The 5th opinion, the 17th of Rabi'ul Awwal, the 6th opinion, the 22nd of Rabi'ul Awwal, the 7th opinion, he was even born in Rabi'ul Awwal, he was born in Ramadan. And this is the opinion of Zubayr ibn Bakkar, who was the first scholar to ever write a history on Makkah. And he died 256 Hijrah. And then there are other opinions as well. So, to summarize, there are over 10 opinions in the earliest books of Islam about the exact day that the Prophet was born. None of them are, is, let's say, uh, indisputable. None of them are clear-cut. None of them have solid evidence. All of them are the opinions of early authors and narrators. And to be very academic, the opinion of the 12th of Rabi'ul Awwal seems to have much less weight than the 2nd and the 8th and the 10th. Because these three have tabi'un taba tabi'un. They have descendants of the Prophet Whereas the opinion of the 12th, it is by Ibn Ishaq, who is 200 years after the birth of the Prophet and he doesn't have any chain. So if this is the case, why then is the opinion of the 12th of Rabi'ul Awwal the most popular? So much so that for many of you it's shocking that I'm daring to go against this fact of history. Right? This might be blasphemy to tell you that how dare you? How, why is it so popular? Very easy to respond. Point number one, Ibn Ishaq. I already mentioned that 90% of authors who write about Sirah, they only rely on Ibn Ishaq. They just take Ibn Ishaq and summarize it, redo it, translate it, do this and that. That's what they do. And it's a good book, but it's not the only book. So because Ibn Ishaq is Ibn Ishaq, and because he says 12th of Rabi'ul Awwal, end of story. No questions asked is going to be the 12th of Rabi'ul Awwal. The second opinion, or the second reason why the 12th of Rabi'ul Awwal became so popular, is that, and this leads us to a controversial issue, but I don't shy away from controversy as you all know, is that the first time that the Prophet's birthday was celebrated as a public event, i.e. the Mawlid al-Nabi or the Milad al-Nabi as we call it, the first time that it was celebrated, the authorities who celebrated it chose the 12th of Rabi' al-Awwal. And because they chose the 12th of Rabi' al-Awwal, now that's it, it just spread like wildfire. The day and the event and the custom now I have written a detailed article about the history of the Mawlid and who started it and how did it become popular and you can refer to it on Muslim Ma'arud. It is called uh, A History of the Mawlid by myself. You can just Google it and you'll find it three parts. Uh, and just to summarize, the Mawlid or the Miladun Nabi, the first recorded instance that we have of anybody celebrating Miladun Nabi is around 517 Hijrah. 517 Hijrah i.e. the 6th century of Islam. So for 500 years, the concept of celebrating the birthday of the Prophet is simply unknown to the Muslims. They cannot, because celebrating birthdays is not a custom that comes from Islam or from, I'm not saying it's haram by the way, I'm saying it's not something that the Arabs would do. They wouldn't record birthdays to celebrate them in the first place, right? Many of you, I know my own grandmother had no idea when she was born. 
They didn't record these things. It was not something of significance to them. The day and the month and the year that you were born. This is a Western concept that is now modern. Everybody records it. But that was not something that, if you even ask your own grandparents, many of them would not know. You know, it's not something that was recorded. And so, the concept of celebrating it is a very late addition. And the first group that celebrated it were the Fatimids of Egypt. And the Fatimids uh, are a dynasty that are not of Sunni theology. They are uh, an extreme Shi'i dynasty. The Fatimids are the ancestors of, in today's time, the Aga Khanis and the Buhra, the Ismailis. Uh, the Fatimids are the, the ancestors of these groups, the extreme Shia groups. And for a number of years, they ruled over Egypt. The Fatimid dynasty ruled over Egypt. And they instituted over 30, 40 festivals. And of course, there's a reason why rulers have festivals. Why do people have festivals? What does it do? Distracting and economy, people come and buy and sell. Popularity of whatever is called the nation state in our times or in their times, the ruling family, right? So there's a reason why the ruling class want to have public festivals. There's a, there's a uh, philosophy behind it. And the Fatim has had over 30 or 40 public festivals throughout the Every few weeks there was a major event and festival. And they celebrated Ghadir Khum. They celebrated 10th of Muharram. These are all Shia festivals. They celebrated the birth of this Imam, the death of that Imam. And of those celebrations, it is said, they celebrated the birthday of the Prophet Muhammad This is the first time in Islamic history that we come across the celebration of the birthday of the Prophet As I said, 517 Hijrah, 517. And the people who are doing it are these Fatimids. And as we said, there's clearly a motive for them to do it. When it was done in Fatimid Egypt, then... 150 years later, some Sunni governors thought this was a good idea and they imported this particular festival. And because it was done in Egypt on the 12th of Rabi'ul Awwal, Egypt at that time was a Fatimid state, they imported it to Mosul, which is outside of, uh, of Baghdad, it's a place in Iraq. The first uh, Sunni governor, he was not a Khalifa, the first Sunni governor who celebrated uh, the Mawlid, celebrated at around 670 or so Hijrah. So for 670 years, this was unknown in the Muslim world to celebrate the birthday of the Prophet And this celebration was done once again on the 12th, and it became a very luxurious festival. And various governors and rulers would then compete with each other who could have the bigger festival and the grander festival. Free meat and free... Uh, uh, bread and, and free, you know, uh, gifts were given out and people, so it became a, a, a literally a national festival. And as I said, there are reasons why rulers want to do this, and so they began to compete with one another in order to attract the, the trade, the commerce, just like now. Why do governments want the Olympics to happen in their country? Right? Why do governments want the World Cup to come to their country? There's reasons. There, we need to be a little bit more uh, reading in here. And so the governors wanted these festivals to become the biggest, so each one wants theirs to be bigger and bigger. And of course, it's the birthday of the process, and who's ever going to say anything about that? And so slowly but surely, from 660 AH, it began to spread in, in Sunni lands. Initially, some scholars opposed it. Some scholars you know, said, well, if you do it with these conditions, it's okay. After a while, under public pressure, just the floodgates opened, and it became a very, very common uh, festival. And you all know my opinion on this is that... Uh, the way to celebrate the birthday of the Prophet if you, really, if you really wanted to celebrate it, is to fast on Mondays. Because that's what he would do. If you really want to celebrate his birthday, then you should fast every Monday. 
Because when he was asked, why do you fast on Monday? He said, because I was born on a Monday. So to take one day of the year and do events and whatnot, I mean, I'm not going to be harsh here, but let me just say, it's a really easy cop-out to show that you're loving the Prophet If you do something one day. Real love is to be dedicated throughout the year, right? Real love is to show that love every single day. And not just one day of the year by giving some money and going to a festival. Nonetheless, so because the first time that the Mawlid was celebrated was the 12th of Rabi'ul Awal, what happened? It became the date associated in the minds of the people. Even though, and then we conclude here with this section, move on to the next one, even though academically speaking, it is actually a very weak date. And the 8th and the 10th and even the 2nd are more authentic historically, and they have evidences from the Sahaba and Tabi'un more than the 12th of Rabi'ul Awwal. Now, we also know that, and there are chains of narrators back to Sa'id ibn al-Musayyib who died 95 Hijrah, so there's a gap, he didn't see the Prophet But he said that it has been narrated to me that the Prophet was born at high noon. So there's a gap, but it is a gap in early Islam, so we can overlook it. Sayyid ibn Musayyib died 95, his father is of the age of the companions, right? So we, we can overlook this little gap, and this is the only narration that we have about the timing of his birth. And that is high noon, when the sun was at its pinnacle and peak. And of course, there is a clear symbolism here that is not lost on anybody, that when the sun is brightest, this is when the Prophet is coming out with his own truth. That is when Allah is revealing, or, or Allah is sending down the Prophet because it is coinciding with the time of the bright sun. Just like the bright sun illuminates everything, so too this Prophet will illuminate everything, and nothing will remain uh, dark around him. Now, when it comes to the actual birth of the Prophet there are so many legends and so many narrations, not one of which is academically sound, except for one. Except for one. All the rest of them are really legends. And these legends are mentioned, and subhanAllah, what is really amazing, and you know, I have to say this frankly here, that we don't need to invent lies to praise the Prophet We don't need to invent fairy tales. Allah has praised him enough, and the facts are enough. We don't need to, to, to fabricate things. And what is really amazing is that the earliest books you go to has the least information. But as you go on and on in history, then the books get bigger and bigger, and the details get more and more. And you wonder, where did this come from? And I mean, if you want to come to Mouse to even demonstrate to you, Ibn Ishaq is this big. And then I have another book written in the 9th century about the seerah. Wallahi, it is this big. Now Ibn Ishaq is the first book of seerah, right? And he's saying, I want to write everything I come across. And it's this big. And then you have a book written 700 years later, five times the size of Ibn Ishaq. And this book is full of, and it is said to me, and my shaykh said, and this and that. Where is it coming from? Well, it's something that, as we said, a little bit legends and whatnot. So, what some of you might have heard, the Prophet was born, let's say, already circumcised. One, one report says. Another, another says he was born and he fell into sajda. Another said he was born and he lifted his finger to the sky to say the shahada. I mean, well, like, just we don't need to do this. And it makes a mockery of our religion. It makes a mockery of our religion. We don't need to invent these things about the Prophet He is the best human being. And the facts are enough to show us that. And when we resort to these tales, Wallahi, it, it makes our religion not look as dignified as it needs to look, you know. Ibn Ishaq mentions none of these things, none of these things. Because he doesn't have this information. But when you turn to books written in 700 Hijrah, 800 Hijrah, MashaAllah, the guy knows so many details, you wonder, where did he get it from, okay? There's only one 
hadith that mentions the birth of the Prophet. He mentions his own birth. And it is a hadith narrated in Muslim Imam Ahmad, Imam Ahmad's book of hadith, and it is an authentic hadith. That the Prophet said, when my mother gave birth to me. Aha, so now he's telling us. It's a hadith that goes back to him. It's not some... Per- because again, imagine who witnessed Amina in the room. Come on. You know, use the brain that Allah has given us. Would a man be there and witness Amina being given birth? So that he then narrates that when he came out, he fell into a sajda. When he came out, he lifted his finger to the sky. I mean, you think about it. But now the Prophet is saying, so Allah told him this happened. He is saying, when my mother gave birth to me, this happened. Right? So now this is something we don't have to doubt at all. The Prophet is telling us. So he said that when my mother was carrying me, this is the first thing, that when my mother was carrying me, uh, and in one version, وَضَعَتْنِي gave birth to me. So there are both versions are mentioned. But the point is when he was either in the room or when he came out, my mother saw a light emanate from her that cast its light or, or it reached all the way to the city of Busra in the land of Syria. The city of Busra in the land of Syria. Busra is on the on the south, south which is the border of this of what is is what? Near Dara. Near Dara. But these people don't know where Dara is, so that doesn't do us much good. Okay. I might but these people don't know where Dara is. It's basically very close to the Arabian border. It's on more on the southern side of the Arabian, of what is now Saudi Arabia, let's say closer to that side. So it's on the southern side of Syria. So the Prophet is saying that my mother saw a light, either in a dream or a physical light, she doesn't mention what, coming from her that came all the way and illuminated the, the palaces or the city of Busra, uh, the palaces of the cities of Busra in Sham, in Syria. Now, what is the significance of this? Scholars have tried to understand why Syria and why you know, this light coming from Amin. Of course the light is him, the light is the Prophet that she's carrying something that will bring light to Busra of Sham. Allah knows best but there are some things that have been derived here that Sham or Syria is mentioned because now the people of Syria can be happy. Alhamdulillah, there's a lot of Syrians here. Last time I taught this class there was no Syrians there so now we have a lot of Syrians here. Syria is a blessed land, according to our religion. Now before you get really happy, do realize that the Islamic Syria is not modern Syria. Islamic Syria includes modern day Jordan and modern day Palestine, a number of different. So Sham is broader than modern day Syria, but you guys are included so you can breathe easily, alhamdulillah. So you are the core, yes, you are the core, true. So it is true that our religion considers Sham to be a holy land overall. And of course, uh, the, the children of Ishaq, uh, Bani Israel, the Jews, they always considered that region to be holy, and in particular, Palestine region to be holy. To this day they do that, right? So we also believe that there is a type of holiness in these lands. And that, and that is why Allah says in the Quran, Subhanallah asra bi abdihi laylan min al-masjid al-harami ila al-masjid al-aqsa alladhi barakna hawlahu. There is barakah around Masjid al-Aqsa. This is Sham. Sham, there is barakah over there. And the Prophet predicted that Sham will remain a fortress of Islam. There's always going to be people of Islam in uh, Sham. And amazingly, Sham was the first major country that was conquered, a province that was conquered after the Arabian Peninsula. Right? Right after the death of the Prophet in the time of Umar ibn al-Khattab, 
Sham was conquered. And one of the first cities, maybe even the first city, that was outside the Arabian Peninsula is Busra. So there is an indication that the Prophet is going to challenge status quo. Sham was the right arm of the Byzantine Empire. I mean, Damascus, do you understand? We think of Damascus as an Arab land or an Arab civilization. Before the coming of Islam, Damascus was the right hand of the Byzantine Empire. It was the jewel of, of the Romans. It was where everything happened, commerce and trade and culture and civilization, everything was there. It was impossible for the Arabs to think that one day Damascus would be the core of Arab civilizations. The Umayyad's capital was Damascus. So by showing the light going to the borders of Syria, there is an indication that Islam is going to conquer this land. It will take over. And that's exactly what happened. That the very first land that was conquered was the land of uh, Syria. And we also believe as Muslims that Isa ibn Maryam will come down in Sham. He's not going to come down in Mecca and Medina. He will descend in Sham because it was Sham that was made holy by his ancestors, the children of Ishaq. It was Sham that was made holy. And he will come down in uh, Damascus, And that is where he will meet the Mahdi. And that is of course uh, towards the end of time. So Sham has a, sim uh, a symbolism. And of course over at this point in time I have to make dua that Allah Azza wa frees Sham from the tyranny that it is currently undergoing. And that Allah helps uh, the people who are trying to oppose this, this tyranny and gives them sabr and patience. And may Allah Azza wa bring the glory of Sham that used to be, bring it back to uh, Sham. Uh, we finish up here. There's only a few minutes left. We finish up here by mentioning a few more things that are uh, alleged to have occurred. Um, that are not found in the authentic books, but they're Allahu Adam. But it says that the uh, temples of the pagans fell down in other lands. I mean, these are things that there's no recorded history of, and I don't believe this to be true myself. Now, one thing a lot of scholars say that when the Prophet was born, this was when the jinn were stopped entry from the heavens. You guys are familiar with this concept? That the jinn were allowed entry into the heavens, to listen to the angels. And Allah references in the Qur'an, in Surah Al-Jinn, that, وَأَنَّا كُنَّا نَقْعُدُ مِنْهَا مَقَاعِدَ لِلسَّمَعِ We used to listen, we had our resting places, and we would listen to the angelic discussions. فَمَنْ يَسْتَمِعِ الْآنَ يَجِدَّهُ شِحَابًا رَسَدًا Whoever listens now will find shihab and rasada, or basically uh, comets or whatnot, uh, kicking him out. So w one group of scholars says, when the Prophet was born, this was when the heavens were closed to these shayateen. But the correct opinion is that this occurred not at the birth, but when he became a Prophet, i.e. at the age of 40. And this is clearly referenced in other hadith as well. That when Iqra came down, when Jibreel came down, basically revelation, that was when the skies were closed. And that was when the jinns began wondering what is happening. And then Allah says in the Qur'an that a group of jinn heard the Qur'an being recited. And they came back believing in the Qur'an. So this did not occur at the birth. I just wanted to point that out. And the final thing that we'll say, time is already up. SubhanAllah, I was wanting to go a few more pages, but uh, time is already up. Uh, Ibn Ishaq mentions that the Prophet was circumcised on the seventh day. Pause here for a while. Later books, seven centuries later, mention he was born uncircumcised. The first book mentions, factually, matter of fact, that Ibn that his grandfather circumcised him on the seventh day. And this is, there's nothing wrong with this. He is a normal child, born of a normal uh, 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 marriage, a normal birth. And so his grandfather circumcised him on the seventh day. And his grandfather, Abdul Muttalib, held a feast for him. And his grandfather chose the name Muhammad, which was a unique and unusual name. 
Some scholars say that this was an unknown name to the Arabs. And one group of scholars says, well, it was known, but it was not common. And this seems to be the stronger opinion. Because there are people whose references we have, whose name was Muhammad. But it was a very uncommon name. And there was nobody in Mecca by that name. Nobody in Mecca. So when people asked Abdul Muttalib, why are you calling him by a name that nobody knows? Nobody's heard of. Why don't you call him one of your standard names of your fathers and, and forefathers? He said, I want him to be praised by the people of the earth as I want him to be praised by the people of the heavens. Muhammad means the one who is praised. I want him to be praised by the people of the earth as I want him to be praised by the people in the heavens. And when the Prophet ﷺ was born, uh, the news spread amongst uh, the Quraysh and Abu Lahab, who was later to become an enemy, at this time of course he is an uncle, and of course he's always going to remain an uncle, but at this time he is not an enemy. Abu Lahab, who was one of the older uncles by the way, because remember, there were ten brothers, and Abu Lahab was born of an, another mother, no other full brother. Abu Lahab did not have any full brother. Abu Talib and Abdullah were full brothers, and others were full brothers. Hamza and others were full brothers. Hamza and Safiya were full brother and sister. Abu Lahab was his own. He didn't have any full. He was much older. So perhaps he felt a type of, I have to care for this offspring, this orphan. You know, my younger brother died and whatnot. Perhaps he felt some sympathy. And so the, the girl that came running, the slave girl that came running to tell him that your uh, son's brother has been born, your, your son's offspring has been born. This girl, as soon as Abu Lahab heard the news, he told her, I set you free. I'm so happy, you're free. It was a slave girl. So he became so happy that just because she came with this good news, he set her free. It shows that he was so happy. And her name was Thuwaybah. Thuwaybah. And in our Indian Pakistani culture, it was transformed to Sobia. But it is in fact Thuwaybah. Uh, and so, and those of you who are named Sobia, this goes back to this misreading of Thuwaybah. Uh, nothing wrong with it, by the way, but it's just the, the name. Uh, and so, uh, there's a hadith in Muslim Imam Ahmad, and with this hadith we conclude and then pray, inshallah, that Hamza saw, or sorry, not Hamza, Abbas. Abbas saw Abu Lahab in a dream after he died, Abu Lahab, after Abu Lahab died, he saw him in a dream. And he saw him being punished with the utmost severe punishment. Because this is Abu Lahab, Tabbatida Abi Lahab in Watab. So, Abbas said to him, did not your relationship with the Prophet your uncle who basically, you know, benefit you? He said, no, except for one thing that I did. That when the good news came that he was born, I freed Thuwaybah, and because of this, I am allowed a few drops of water. A few drops of water. Because I did this good thing when the Prophet was born, because of this, I'm allowed just a little bit of, of that's my concession that's given to me. That's all that is uh, given to him. But the point being that he released Thuwaybah and gave, made her free, so he was happy at the birth of the Prophet wasallam. We will continue inshallah next week and the week after that, and then for the month of July, uh, a different series will start. Dr. Bashar will take over completely in a different series. Uh, two weeks we'll be doing the seerah inshallah ta'ala. Uh, and with this, we don't have time for questions, so we will uh, call somebody to do the adhan, and I will see you inshallah uh, next time. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.